Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Hey, folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, Let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page and you can actually support the stream and well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not so good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey guys, welcome to the... Welcome to the Team House, guys. Uh, We're here tonight with our guest, Ben Milligan. He's the author of By Water Beneath the Walls. It's a history of America's maritime commandos, essentially, maritime commando capability from World War II to what, we say the end of Vietnam and then kind of talking in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, into... I cut it off and right, right about 72. Mm-hmm. The epilogue takes us up to 76, but yeah. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I still got like 50 pages to go on this book, but I've really enjoyed it. And um, I hope, you know, thank you for coming tonight. Thank you, Ben, for joining us in studio, man. It's awesome to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I wanted to start, you know, with the, the first half of the interview, talking a little bit about yourself and, and your career, because you are a former SEAL yourself. Right. Um, what was your life like growing up, and what was sort of that pathway that took you into the Navy? Do we have uh, Do we have enough whiskey? Yes, we, we do. do. <laughs> hey, I'll start here. Um, gosh, um, I I think like probably both of you, I'd always wanted to do it. I mean, not always wanted to do it, but, you know, you hit that, you know, 10, 11, 12, you know, age, and you start looking around, and um, I had a very close relationship with my mom's dad, my grandfather. He had been a Marine in World War II, um, and, uh, you know, at a, at a young age, I always kind of knew that I wanted to be a Marine until I found out about Navy SEALs, and then... Uh, 
that's all I could think about. It went. Uh, I, I had a you know great family. Uh, my dad was a uh, ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Um, I had two brothers and a sister, um, but nobody in my family, you know, short of my two grandfathers in World War II, had ever been you know in the military. So I think uh, the first time I or any you know I, I you know anybody in my family had talked about the military outside of you know my grandparents' context was you know I was sitting at the dinner table like. 12 years old and I announced uh, that I was going to be a Navy SEAL. I don't think anybody had ever heard Navy SEAL in my house before um, and so they just kind of looked at me <laughs> and I was like, but uh, you know through junior high and starting into early high school you know I had you know made it pretty clear that I wasn't going to go to college which is you know for a uh, you know doctor's kid uh, that's that's not okay. So uh, it led to some, you know, pretty, you know, uh, uh, energetic arguments. <laughs> um, and then uh, I just stopped talking about it. I didn't talk about it for uh, a couple of years at least. Um, uh, and it didn't really come up again until uh, my senior year of high school. Um, I was uh, supposed to be uh, coming home from a, a, you know, a practice. I think it was a soccer practice or a track practice. And um, I didn't show up, um, and I think my mom just had some sense, and she drove to the recruiter's office, and there I was, and I was getting ready to, you know, <laughs> sign in. Uh, I just, I mean, I just turned 18. She must have known. Um, and the recruiter, to his credit, like right before I signed, he was like, "Do you, uh, you know that woman?" <laughs> <laughs> she had, you know, both hands on the glass, <laughs> sobbing, and. Um, uh, so I went, uh, we, we went out to the parking lot, we had an adult conversation. Uh, she said, um, you know, if, I, if I would do one year of college um, that, and I didn't like it, then they would have, or I would have their blessing to, to you know, join, join the military. I think, you know, my parents knew who I was, they knew me, you know, always knew that I was kind of a bookish kid and um, they knew that, you know, college would grab me. You know, and it did. Uh, once I got there, and I, you know, I, I discovered that you could go to classes all about World War II. Um, I was hooked. So <laughs> I was hooked at least for four years, and you know, four years came around. I was a history major in college, and mm -hmm. you know, what are you going to do with a history degree? <laughs> be a teacher. Yeah, I was. I wanted to be a. So that's what I did. So you did your four years. You graduated. Did you uh, go and enlisted, or you go try to go officer? Yeah, I tried to go officer. I was, uh, um, I went through the, uh, the the OCS recruitment process, um, and you know I did all the. You know, uh, they were the recruiter um, knew that you were going to have to you know have pretty high scores to compete with Naval Academy guys uh, and ROTC guys. So um, I my PT scores were pretty pretty great. I mean, I, I went you know a whole year you know doing three a day workouts and uh, um, never took one hot shower in that entire year. And uh, I put a what I thought was a really good um, officer package together. Um, I had, uh, but I, I didn't know. I'd never met anybody in the Navy. I had, didn't have anybody counseling me on how you know competitive it was to get in. Um, so my letter of recommendation uh, for leadership was written by my high school soccer coach. <laughs> like you need like an admiral or like a senator or something like that. I was 
It was pathetic. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't pathetic. It was a really nice letter, and I still, you know, I, I appreciate it to this day. But my, yeah, I was, I was out of my depth. So uh, the application went in, you know, predictably rejected. Sorry, and uh, so I, uh, then I had another serious conversation with my folks, and my dad at that point was like, "I think this is something you have to do," and uh, I went over to the enlisted recruiter's office and. That's what happened. Did, now, did you have did you have a contract? When I you did. Were... At the time, it was called the Seal Challenge contract, and they were. I think I'm going to have one of these. Yeah. yeah, please. And what year was this, by the way? 2000. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, had the the Seal Challenge contract, um, and then um, it was pretty easy after that. I mean, I you know I'd gone through months and months with uh, the. OCS recruiter, uh, and then, you know, I assumed I was going to have to start all over, you know, with the enlisted recruiter, and, you know, it'd take, you know, months and months more. I think it was five days. Yeah. And I was on a bus going to Great Lakes. Yeah. So. Yeah. The great mistakes. <laughs> Which you've been to. I, I have not. I actually went to uh, San Diego. Oh, nice. Yeah, for both. I'm not Navy sure that that's... Marine, so. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, no, I didn't have to deal with any of that weather. <laughs> Um, cheers, by the way. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Did your uh, you you mentioned that your your mom's dad was sort of w w very influential, but both of them had, had both of your parents uh, parent dads had been yeah. in World War II. Did they counsel you to or to not join? I, I, did they have feelings about it? I mean, my uh, my mom's dad, who I had the you know particularly close relationship with, he was, uh, I think he knew that I was going to do that and he yeah. was supportive of it. Um, my other grandfather, he'd been, uh, in the 12th armored division. Um, he and I hadn't, uh, I don't, I don't recall him, him and I talking about it. I think he was, you know, supportive. I, I, I think most people were just confused. You know, my, my two grandfathers were, I mean, um, my army grandfather was more confused about what the seals were. Uh -huh. I mean, he's not confused anymore. I mean, he's you know he went to my graduation and everything, but um, yeah, they were just. Uh, That's fantastic, though. That, that um, mm -hmm. did did both of them make it to graduation? They did. Yeah, they That's both great. did. Wow. Yeah, yeah I was really twenty two cool. years old. My so the one that the grandfather was uh, very close with. He uh, he passed away just in twenty sixteen. He was one hundred and two. Yeah, and he swam every day until he was ninety-eight, and so so the interesting thing about that grandfather, um, so he had uh, not not only he had been a marine, he'd been a, a, a marine artilleryman, fought in Guadalcanal, or not Guadalcanal, he trained on Guadalcanal and fought on uh, Okinawa, but after Okinawa, after fighting on Okinawa secured, uh, they were looking for anybody that could swim. Uh, to join the underwater demolition teams, and at that point, the, I didn't know this at the time, you know, um, when I was learning this family lore. But I knew that, uh, you know, they needed lots and lots of swimmers to, you know, lead the way, lead, you know, uh, for the uh, invasion of Japan. So they needed everybody that could swim, army, marine, whatever. So he was a marine volunteer for the UDTs. Oh, really? So he did three weeks of, That's you know, underwater demolition wow. training. Yeah. I, you know, when you said that, it, it just reminded me the on Monday, I interviewed a World War II veteran, uh, this guy, uh, John Luckadoo, who flew B-17s hmm. over France and, and Nazi Germany. 
And um, he, he has actually his book came out this week. Um, if you guys want to check it out, and I'm trying to recall the name, uh, the title of the book. I'll, I'll look it up and for you guys later. But anyway, you reminded me of that because this gentleman, I don't know how old he is at this point. It must be in his 90s. Has to be. Totally articulate, sharp right there. I was like, I, want, I hope I'm like that at this guy's age. I hope I'm like your grandfather and here doing episode 5000 of the team house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was great. I mean, he, it was great to go to his 100th birthday. Yeah. Uh, after his 100th birthday things started to take it was mm -hmm. yeah it was it was rough to see him but he and I were I mean so not only did I get uh, you know the uh, sort of the um, motivation or early interest in the military from that relationship but he was a really disciplined uh, reader uh -huh. uh, and uh, really you know he, his main focus was always American history uh, and when I was in and I you know I don't know how uh, that relationship, you know, happened or how, you know, I think he just saw, you know, the same sort of interest in me. Um, so when I was in junior high, so right about that same time I was, you know, deciding that I was going to be a, you know, grow up and be a Navy SEAL, um, he started taking me every fall break to a different uh, Civil War battlefield. Uh, so I, you know, right, right, right at that point, you know, I, you know, it's a really critical point, I think, at 12, 13, 14, when you really start thinking about what you want to do when you get older. Uh, so I knew one that I was, you know, really, I, I really wanted to be a, you know, a frogman, but I also was really interested in history, and I wanted to write, and I wanted to read, and I wanted to. So. Yeah. Now, he never at any point in time gave you shit about going navy. No, no, he was. Uh, I, I don't know when he found out what the SEAL teams were, but he was. Yeah, he thought it was the coolest thing. That's great. He what? also liked my ponytail, though. He, he was encouraging <laughs> yeah. of that, so maybe he was just a really encouraging <laughs> grandfather. He was the best. What was it uh, about the SEALs versus, like, Force Recon, you know, at, right, or, right. you know, Special Forces or whatever else? Like, what was it? What was the allure for you? I think there were two things, and I think um, I had. I think there was this reputation that one, the SEAL teams, or the uh, BUDS was the hardest thing that you could do. Um and that was always something I was a bit self-conscious about. I, I mean, I, I didn't really know if it was the hardest uh, curriculum out there. Uh, but two, uh, I think it had this reputation because of the, you know, even you know, going back to the acronym of its name, Sea, Air, and Land, that SEALs go everywhere. Uh -huh. um, which I just assumed it was true. And then, you know, I think that was reconfirmed uh, during Desert Storm when... You know, I, we, you, you see, um, I, I had a Newsweek uh, of, you know, special forces type guys um, right when Desert Storm was happening. And there were SEALs in dune buggies with mm -hmm. grenade launchers and machine guns. I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Driving around the desert with your best, you know, your two best buddies and your, yeah, that, yeah. So, you know, before we've, when we've had people on the show and we talk about the various selections and, and what the mindset is going to selection, you know, one of the things that comes up is, is the, the people who are inevitably su successful are people who really, like, they never even consider the possibility to quit. Like, it's just like, it's just what they have to do to get to where they want. I thought about it. Did you? I mean, it crossed my, I, the first time I, I hit that water and um, there, was a, there was a moment, uh, you know, in Indoc. Uh, where I was, um, boy, I, I couldn't, it was, 
it was January when our when our bud started, and phase one hadn't even started yet. Yeah, and uh, I hit that water, and I was like, y- "You've got to be kidding me!" Yeah, and we were in that we were in there for thirty minutes doing like a uh, acclimation, uh, you know, surf torture type thing, and then I knew we were going to have to get out of there and go right to the pool and do two hours in the pool. It's like, well, this seems ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that was, pro- I think that was the only time I thought about quitting, but I mean, if you can get through that one, that one time, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, yeah. and, and how many guys, I mean, I don't know how, if you've brought guys on here in the past who have quit something and then come back for a second chance. Like I know several guys, uh, um, several, several seals that have gone through, um, hasn't worked out. Then they've gone back for a second time. You know, I went through buds and I was, you know, first time every time I didn't fail anything, you know, and, uh, you know, my career was relatively short lived. I did seven years, you know, active duty. And then, but some of those guys that had trouble, you know, I noticed they came back for a second time. You know, some of them are, you know, incredible. They, they really know how valuable it was. I mean, yeah. it really meant something to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. They have that taste of failure in their mouth. They never want it again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, I think that they go to the fleet and they realize that that's, yeah. they don't want to be there. So right. it's like, get me out of here. Right. But I think they're, you know, the guys that, for those guys listening that, you know, maybe something doesn't work out right away and we can talk about this later, but you know, the guy, the characters that in the book that I discovered, like I would say 90% of the characters that I found, they all started on their path, uh, expecting to do something, uh-huh. and then the rug gets pulled out from under them, or a new opportunity presented itself, and they find themselves doing something that they never expected to do. For what it's worth. Yeah. No, I. I mean, that type of flexibility, though, I is you know, or or seizing opportunity when it comes up, you know, in lieu of this is the plan. Well, this didn't happen, and you know, let's readjust now uh, i mean that kind of is a hallmark of, of like special operations absolutely you know forces uh and, and the people who start them really i think I, I definitely have known a few people who failed out of special forces selection or the q course and ended up in like some sort of like special access program that special forces guys wish they were a part of you know it's weird the way that works well sometimes. i think there's also i mean i i don't want to make a huge generalization but there's also i mean a lot of times in a selection course, it is the luck of the draw. Are your shins going to hold up? Are yeah. your knees going to yeah. hold up? Like, like getting getting injured or not passing an event, um, sometimes that's just not in our control, within our control, you know. Um, and, you know, do you let that moment crush you? Or you, do you find, you know, do you make a new way? Absolutely. You know. Um so you went into the Navy in 2000, so you were, like, you were kind of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, like, young frogman when 9-11 kicked off. I was in, um, I had just graduated BUDS. I think I was, I think, oh yeah, I was either, I just finished airborne school. We So you graduate at the time, you know, the... Uh, pipeline's different now, but it's it was uh, um, at the time it was graduate buds go right to Fort Benning and you do Army Airborne. So we yeah we all expected um, 
boy, we're going to war. Um, didn't quite work out that way. It was a bit more jagged timeline uh, for me, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we showed up. We, I mean, I, I packed, uh, you know, 9-11 morning, I packed my bags, was ready for a recall, and then uh, I found myself getting no call, reporting for, you know, SQT or SEAL qualification training, you know, right as scheduled. But yeah, it, it definitely took on a, uh, a much more, you know, serious mm -hmm. or, uh, yeah. So what was that path like after, you know, you got your trident, you get to a platoon, um, what, what was the next step for you? Uh, the next step was SEAL Team 4. Uh, I went to a platoon that was going nowhere near the war. We were uh, assigned to uh, an ARG platoon or a, or a MARG, and we were in the Mediterranean, uh, mostly in the Mediterranean. It was based out of Rota, but we would bounce from ship to ship uh, doing various uh, missions. We ended up, the most exciting thing that we did was uh, support the uh, uh, whatever the mission was in uh, Liberia, the, the second civil war with Liberia. Oh, there's a there's an embassy evacuation, right? There wasn't. Yeah, there was an embassy evacuation. We did a series of like hydrographic reconnaissance oh, really? uh, missions there. It was pretty cool. I mean, yeah. At the time, like I mean, if if there hadn't been this other stuff going on, right, right, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq, it would have been you know, Liberia. We were doing thing. the thing, right, right. Yeah. But, uh, and not only that, but that platoon, I mean, if that platoon had come later in my career, you know, and I'd seen, it, it would have been incredible, you know, getting to see these cathedrals and museums and everything that we got to see in uh, Spain and everywhere else that were, it would have been. Well, but you guys were probably concerned like everybody else that wasn't, they didn't get the initial deployment. It. It, it was going to be over. Yeah, like, we're going to miss this. It's going to be over in three weeks and that'll be it. Yeah. We missed, I mean, at the time we missed Afghanistan. Nothing was going on in Afghanistan after that. Uh, things were going on in Iraq, and we were, you know, finding out, uh, you know, about that, and just, you know, getting sour grapes the whole time. <laughs> well, lay, lay on us what that hydrographical survey was like, because that'll dovetail with what's in your book too. Um, you, you finning towards shore in the night. I mean, was, this mm -hmm. was the real Frogman mission. That it was everything you wanted it to be. It was cool, and yeah, and it, it absolutely did uh, come back to help uh, writing it. I mean, we. Um, so much of buds is you know doing you know it's it's almost buds is almost a metaphor for uh, the the evolution of naval special warfare you know you start you know with that conditioning phase it's that uh you know hell week and you know all the guys that uh were inducted into naval special warfare even from those early early times they they're doing all of that conditioning and all the misery of hell uh, of hell week and everything like that um, and then you go into this water phase uh, with, you know, the near, near dive phase and everything, which is, you know, sort of the direction that Naval Special Warfare went to after World War II. You know, the, the expectation for um, planners uh, is that, you know, the future of the underwater demolition teams is not going to be on land. It's going to be in the water. So we need to get really good at going deeper, farther, um, you know, uh, putting bombs on ships and doing, you know, uh, disabling mines and all the rest. Um, and then, you know, that metaphor, you know, you go, go ashore and you go on land. And that's, um, that's kind of how, you know, my career went. It was, you know, the, the training phase and then, you know, the, you know, the Liberia phase and Liberia was, uh, it was, it was, it was interesting. I mean, I, I, you know, 
doing all the academic stuff that we had done in buds and you know actually prepping a hydrographic chart just like the guys not just like the guys had done uh you know if you're plotting a uh, you know a, a beach approach to saipan but not too dissimilar i mean it was uh we were doing at one point we did an uh, you know a, a, an online uh hydrographic survey you know of a beach right outside the uh the embassy there in monrovia and what does that look like? Are you are you uh, like for, for a good swimmer or a bad swimmer? Because I was a bad swimmer. But for, for anybody, for, yeah, for both good and bad. Swimmers. There was a guy in my class who, uh, Phil Sandberg, who he's uh, he's now out of the um, um, the teams. He was a kid from uh, um, Minnesota. He was you know we had you know Olympic uh, close to Olympic caliber. Uh, swimmers in my buds class, as, as almost every buds class is. This kid was, he'd come from the fleet. Before that, he'd been, I think he'd been on his high school swim team. Uh, but you, you look at him, he's, you know, he's not, you know, a particularly, you know, muscular guy. I mean, he's a little, a little roomy, but like when he got in the water, he was, he was incredible. Mm -hmm. And our buds class, he had, uh, they have that, uh, the surfboard on the wall in the second phase um, classroom. And on that surfboard at the time there were like 10 swim pair names on it everybody uh, every swim pair that had uh finished the seven mile swim in under three hours uh he had i mean he he crushed the swim he he and his uh you know swim buddy got on the uh on the swim board or on the uh, surfboard uh, but he was there with me on that uh um hydrographic survey in uh in liberia so being an incredible swimmer uh he had gotten uh you know the hardest position you know on that you know swimmer line which is the furthest one out to sea away from the beach uh i had barely made i'd almost gotten dropped from buds uh because of swimming i had to um i had to train every um weekend so buds you know a lot of people don't know this but you get the weekends off in buds um, so when everybody was recovering, I was at the pool trying to get faster and faster because I was comfortable in the water. I just didn't know how to swim fast. Right. Uh, so when I got into that first platoon, um, I was, you know, I was, I had the, the position of the, the, the closest to the beach. I was, you know, supposed to be swimming, you know, through the surf, um, which, you know, wasn't supposed to be bad, but there was a really intense shore break, uh, on that particular beach. And, um. The most humiliating slash, you know, awesome frogman story that I have was, you know, I got tangled up in my lead line and, and I, there was nothing I could do and there was nothing to, you know, really measure with my lead line anyway. So I find myself, you know, I couldn't swim because I was wrapped up in this thing. I, I had to pull my, you know, my dive knife out and I'm cutting myself out of my own, uh, you know, swimmer line. And I find, you know, this wave is about to crash on me. I don't know what, what to do. If I put my knife back in the sheath, I'm going to stab myself in the leg. So what do I do? <laughs> put it right in the mouth. Dive through the wave. So, and there were CNN, you know, photographers on the beach. So if you if Very you dig, nice Hollywood moment. It was the coolest thing I've ever done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so have you seen a picture of, of yourself? We made the cover of USA Today. My mom swears that I'm on the cover. I'm not, but... Yeah, there's yeah, we're we're on the cover of USA Today. That, that platoon, anyway, it was pretty cool. <laughs> so, what was the next uh, jumping off point for you from uh, that mission in the Mediterranean and obviously Western Africa? Yeah, I got out for a brief period, and then I came back and found myself in a platoon with SEAL Team Five uh, and Al Ambar, mm -hmm. and it was, you know, it was kind of everything 
you know I had expected, and uh, it was sort. I mean, it was the time. It was the quintessential SEAL deployment. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of sniper Overwatch missions. A lot of uh, direct action assaults. Um, culminated with a pretty good ambush of the platoon, um, and it was uh, it was it was good. It was intense. It was a good. Uh, it was everything you sort of wanted to get from it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that wanted is. I mean, it was everything you know. You kind of you would you would expected to okay. you know get. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm sure you guys probably felt something similar. Um, it was uh, it was a great it was a great platoon. It was I mean, but yeah, I mean, at the time it wasn't uh, wasn't probably too. It wasn't it wasn't at all dissimilar from what other SEAL platoons were experiencing. Um, but it was sort of the first time that I started to think about, you know, uh, what what were we doing here, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, I, sh- I should step back. So there was a period where I got out. Uh, I, I left the Navy. I, I did some contracting, uh, you know, security contracting in Iraq. And um, got to work with lots of different, you know, special operations types. Worked with a lot of Rangers, uh, a lot of Marines, uh, Green Berets. And it was it was sort of there that I started to realize that, you know, there were other units out there, um, and they all looked at us weird, or they all looked at us like, "What the hell are you guys doing here?" You know what I mean? Like, I know you guys have thought it, you know, at some point, and and it was it was probably yeah, there. Not once. I I think to to be fair, I I mean yeah, I think that what you're alluding to is like you guys are a maritime commando unit. Why the hell are the you one foot in the water? Yeah. You know, why why are you in this sort of landlocked yeah, country? Why are, why are your why are both feet on a mountaintop? Um, or, but but to be fair, I mean. After 9-11, every special operations unit had to exceed their mandate and ended up doing things that they weren't necessarily training to do beforehand, right? Yeah. And that's what I assumed. Yeah. I assumed that was the reason that, that uh, our mission had expanded. That was the reason that my, you know, my experience in Liberia had you know, shifted to this mm-hmm. experience in Iraq. Um, I would have continued to think that if I had not, you know. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Done that. All right, we'll, yeah. we'll get into that. But we'll get into that. We'll but yeah, that. but I mean, it was, and, and it was a completely, it was, a, it was an experience completely divorced from, yeah. you know, the water from the... Oh, what are we doing? I got to give a shout out to our sponsors, Dave. You want to hit up Chill Boys? Yeah, sure. Uh, hey guys, um, if you like your boys staying cool and chill, if you like your boys staying chill, check out uh, ChillBoyUndies.com. Um, they make these really awesome, like bamboo cotton uh, briefs, boxer briefs, nice socks, long johns, good stuff. Um, that's ChillBoys.com. I mean, they are really, really comfortable, especially with summer approaching. You don't want to get the funk going on down there. Uh, chillboys.com promo code team 15 for 15% off your first purchase. That's chillboys.com team 15 for 15% off your first purchase. And our other sponsor for today's show is Orca Coolers. And I got some merch here. 
Uh, I, I won't I- insult our guest, giving him the uh, U.S. Army uh, mugs. These are Orca coolers. I'm gonna, I got this one. This is, this is more agnostic uh, thermos for you. <laughs> hey, all right. What is it? Is flowers? They're fly fishing, yeah. Oh, that's a nice thing. Yeah, Orca Coolers, guys. OrcaCoolers.com. If you that's go there and check them out today, they're, uh, you can use the promo code TEAMHOUSE20 to get 20% off your order. I mean, they make, obviously, thermoses like this. And we also got this huge U.S. Army cooler here. Oh, oh that's nice. You can take to the beach, load it up with some brewskis. It's got wheels. It's got a pull handle. Oh, does it doesn't have wheels? No. Oh, it's, okay, but it's got the handle to carry it. That's nice. Do I? Uh, do you have chill boys for? I, I don't have any undies for you. I'm sorry. I have, I have a pair. But <laughs> you want to lend? You want to lend them yours? I right, man, look. Let's swap them. I, I was a, I was a corpsman in the navy, so <laughs> nothing's nothing's. Out of my lane. We, we have established with previous guests that it's not gay if you're underway. Right. We've talked about this. Right. We've talked about it extensively. Maybe more than we should. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Have you ever been underway? No. I'm sorry. It's a hoot. I'm sorry. I'm sure it was. I feel like I missed something. My favorite uh, my favorite underway story is I was... Uh, um, you guys haven't experienced it, but they'll do like a sweeper's call like every hour. Like on the carrier deck? No, uh, no, sweeper, just like, sweepers, man your brooms. Yes, sweepers. Oh, so okay. Throughout okay. the ship, okay. like fore and aft. I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah. What it is. yeah. So I, I was walking. I mean, if you're a seal on on board a navy ship, you don't have any job. You don't sweep anything. You just you know stand around, work out. Uh, you know. Anyway, um, I was walking through a passageway, and uh, I saw a young sailor um, who was sitting. Uh, you know, legs crossed underneath a ladder well. Um, he had a foxtail in his hand. He was fully asleep. <laughs> fully 100% asleep. He heard footsteps, and he just woke up and he just started <laughs> sweeping <laughs> so he wouldn't get in trouble. <laughs> so awesome. take this thing 360 back 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 on the rails. Yeah, back on the rails. L- LM bar. Well, yeah, and talking about sort of the one foot in the water verse, like, I think, because we saw in the war on drugs, too, is that when there's money going into something, everyone everybody wants a it. part of yeah. it, and you get mission creep, because um, everybody says, we can do that. I don't think it had as much to do with um, money, or at least I don't think NSW's motivation was money. I think NSW's motivation is there's a war going on, right. and we're not going to miss this. Right, 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 right. Which makes sense. I mean, which is always, you know, I don't want to keep edging back toward the book. Right, I do, but um, that's always the uh, that's always the bias or the uh, 
Um, it's a bias like towards the action. I mean, you have elite yeah. commandos. Of course, they want to get into right. a war. Right. right. Yeah. But there's also there's something else that I didn't, um, I didn't anticipate, and that's this. Uh, you know, it, it's the uh, impulse from you know the the branch of service that the you know the SEAL teams are attached to, which is the U.S. Navy. Uh, they also want to get into the war. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they use the SEAL teams mm -hmm. as this sort of harpoon that they launch <laughs> out and then they grab that rope and they pull themselves in. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, uh, when be between the SEALs and the, the fighter pilots, like those are their big recruiting tools also, you know? I mean, the, like the, the Navy. Yeah, Tom Cruise and Charlie Sheen, man. Yep. Absolutely. I've never met a Tom Cruise in the Navy, but I've met lots of Charlie Sheens. Yeah. Tiger blood and all that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, walk us through a little bit more of, uh, I'd like to hear about some of the um, operations that you were doing in, in AMBAR and, you know, what that was like. You're still a relatively young sailor. This is your first experience seeing real combat. Um, if you can walk us through sort of like what the mission was, jocking up for those missions and, and starting to go outside the wire. So we, so that, that deployment, we were following... Um, the uh, uh, SEAL Team Three, the sort of the, the task unit bruiser uh, era. So we were we were coming right on the heels of that, right at the uh, sort of the beginning of the surge. Mm -hmm. So it was a it was a mix of you know counterinsurgency type FID and then you know uh, straight direct action, you know Vietnam type SEAL stuff, mm -hmm. taking boats up the Euphrates. Um, inserting, offsetting, uh, patrolling to some place and either doing a hit or laying up someplace and waiting to uh, see if anybody was going to come out. So on uh, one of the last missions, we, um, we, we did a really great job of uh, uh, getting in to this town. It was sort of like a suburb of Ramadi. Um, it was... Uh, it was along the Euphrates. It was, uh, but it was, you know, this little town of Abu Bali, and it was. Uh, we'd inserted, we'd um, taken two uh, separate uh, houses um, on either sides of a of a little lake, and we were, you know, positioned to sort of cover the flank of a marine patrol that was going to be coming up. And uh, at one point, you know, right a uh, little bit after sunset, we had a. Uh, the Marines got contacted. Um, one of the Marines uh, almost got shot. I mean, he he took a you know bullet through the crotch of his pants, and they, they weren't going to get up after that. So uh, they asked for our support. So one of our units on the southern side of the lake, I was in the northern uh, uh, spot. He uh, gathered a little team together to go hunt a sniper in broad daylight, which isn't particularly comfortable. But right before they, they left the house, there was a, you know, the, this little, you know, Iraqi or insurgent sniper team comes bebopping out of an alleyway in tracksuits and masks and RPGs and everything like that. And uh, they took care of the problem pretty quickly. But uh, as that was happening, I don't know what happened, but there was a, you know, a, another element that saw our position on the north and contacted us pretty good and uh, pinned us down. Like, we, there was not a lot that we could do. One of our... Uh, one of our uh, guys, uh, SEAL uh, Mark Robbins, he was on a, uh, the top floor of this little structure that we, we were in. He popped up. I think he, he engaged one uh, fighter, 
killed him, and then uh, was about to engage this machine gunner who was pinning us down. And right before he engaged him, he saw this guy with an RPG, so he shifted his attention. The machine gunner he killed the guy with the RPG, but the other guy shot him through the eye. It uh, went through the head, went went through the right eye, out the back of the head, um, and uh, so we spent the rest of that engagement just trying to save him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it was uh, it, it was touch and go th- there for a second. The other, so the other uh, the other team from the south side of the lake, they you know risked everything. They came around that lake. They fought through house after house, getting to our position. Um, took up, you know, a little um, flanking position on that uh, unit. But there was this other other guy, this Marine, who was <coughs> he was the the uh, top commander. I mean, he was the he was the commander of the of the of the fob down there. But his Marines were out. But he he was at the talk, so he gathered together this little. A group of Marines, you know, took two Humvees up this road that we had never known to not be IED'd. Right. Braved this, you know, kind of mad dash to get to our position, put his Humvees between the insurgents and a, uh, you know, a field so we could call in a um, uh, a medevac for, you know, Mark. Uh, Which was incredible. It was incredible, you know, to see, you know, another... You know, he wasn't a SEAL or anything like that. And you see this guy, like, you know, risk everything for some, some you know, junior SEAL that he'd never met. Throw a posse together and just roll Throw a right posse out. together. Yeah. Did and, the, and the posse that he gathered together, I mean, he, the, the, the funniest story that I have from that was that this guy, uh, he, at one point, he was trying to, you know, I was trying to get a smoke out there myself, but he was... Um, he was trying to get a smoke out to, you know, signal the, the medevac helicopter. So he's yelling up to his gunner. He's like, I need a smoke. I need a smoke. And this, you know, 18 year old kid, he like hands him a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like every squad's got one. Yeah. 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 It was probably me back in, back <laughs> yeah, in the day. It was probably me too. <laughs> but, but, uh, Mark, uh, he lived, and he uh, he managed to, you know, despite having his, you know, eye, not missing an eye, and having a Gatorade cap-sized hole in the back of his head, he walked to the helicopter. Wow. Jesus. He knew that he was going to be taking another gun out of the fight if he, you know, let them carry him, so he, he literally muscled his way to the helicopter. That's insane. That's amazing. The guy took a machine gun round through. PKM round right through the. Wow. The 7.62 yeah. by 54 round through yeah. the eyeball. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, he's a uh, he's he's a tough kid. Or he's not a kid anymore, but he's uh, he's an incredible person. Did did you uh, because can this, you hear me okay? I'm on the, on this thing okay. Because this is something new uh, for seals in terms of. Uh, <clears throat> In, I mean, it was new for everybody, but in terms of tactics, um, you know, this wasn't like uh, like a, a small unit operation like in Vietnam where you could silently kind of, you know, get in and get out of places. Um, like in, in, in a lot of these built up areas, you needed to have a blocking force, you needed to have security, you needed to have a, a quick reaction force. Did did you did you guys did you see your tactics changing over time? Um, yeah, I mean we did we, we definitely like you know in a in an environment like that we were trying to be as 
you know, as helpful as we could. I mean, you know, it was different. The the uh, the the the, the capture-kill cycle that, you know, SEALs are always trying to get to, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you go, you grab a guy, you ransack him for information, and then you go to grab the next guy, or, mm-hmm. you know, that's... That was available to us to some degree, and we had a pretty robust intel uh, infrastructure to do that. But at the same time, you want to, like, just like that Marine major who cobbled together that little force of, you know, guys to come get us, um, you want to be helpful to other Americans that are, you know, risking everything right. every day. Right. And in that instance, you know, if Marines are going to be out there patrolling, you know, through what we knew was a, you know, a really sporty area. Right. We're going to help. Right. And that's, and, so, and that's where you guys were at at that point in time. Was, was, I think that's where everybody yeah. was at. Like, I mean, I know Tasking you know, a Bruiser was doing, you know, the same thing. I know that the, the, the Habania Tasking you know, that preceded us was doing the same thing. And I think it took a, a, a second for, you know, everybody's sort of fighting the last war. Right. Everybody does it. Right. And, you know, the last war for the SEAL teams was really Vietnam. Right. So we were always, you know, you're always expecting you know, the same thing to repeat itself. And it just wasn't doing it at that point. So it took a second for, you know, NSW to get it sort of on step. And once it did, like, you know, you find, uh, if you're, if it seemed like NSW, by making those changes tactically, uh-huh. all these other new opportunities were, you know, appearing for us too. Well, I feel, I feel, because you mentioned fighting the, the last war or fighting fighting the way we think, you know, because CQB became, you know, sort of the de facto way of waging war for special operations. In, That's the know, culmination, right. Yeah. You're always expecting to get to there, right. like the, the big then, mission. And then I think that after a while, people realized that there was no reason to do CQB. Like, there was no hostage. There was no reason to go into these these buildings where the insurgents knew the, the tactics they had, you know, they had barricaded or set up or whatever, rigged it. And so then, you know, there was a slow shift to call outs and, and things mm-hmm. like that. So when you say that, we all, you know, everybody fights the last war, not only do we fight the last war, but we also, like, fight, like, to the, I don't want to say to what is sexy, but CQB was like, the, it was the, the cool s- thing. It was yeah. the thing, right? Um, but really, this was back to like World War II style, house to house. Did you find that the army was doing? So you, your your career, you know, precedes nine eleven. Did you find that the army was doing, or uh, Rangers, Green Berets, or are they doing all that CQB? Yeah. So when I was in the Ranger Battalion, they were transitioning from sort of the preeminent light infantry force uh, in airfield seizures and. Um, you know, patrol bases and all that. They were still doing all that. But then they were also doing CQB and implementing CQB. And all that was, of course, coming down from the higher tier. Um, and then they kind of switched over and that became how everybody, even, I think, conventional infantrymen, that became how people conducted war until they realized there's no hostage in this building. We don't need to rush in. We don't need to dominate Four Corners. We can pie these windows off. We can pie these doorways off, and we can throw in a grenade if we don't like what we see. Yeah. By the time I got there in, like, 2002, I felt like we were transitioning from lessons learned in Mogadishu to this new form of warfare, and the JSOC guys definitely helped modernize what Ranger Battalion was doing. Yeah. 
um, as far as like CQB is concerned. Hmm. Um, but another thing on that too, and that I wanted to ask you, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Navy SEALs start changing the way they were deployed? Like, wasn't it at first they, 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 um, they came to double up the platoon strength on deployments? They did. They, uh, and that happened, that happened on that first, uh, deployment that I was on. Ah, okay. So we went from, you know, platoon size deployments and, a SEAL uh, platoon is how many dudes? Well, at the time it was about sixteen. Okay. Uh, I think we're. I think now it's it's a it's more it's mm -hmm. it's more more toward twenty a little bit a little bit north of twenty, but um, yeah, the time was about sixteen. Um, so more than more than an A team. And that was because they were previously task organized for maritime. Well, uh, the expectation is that they're just like Vietnam. They're gonna you know each mm -hmm. platoon is gonna split into squads. Mm -hmm. And that uh, each squad needs to be, you know, sort of self-sufficient, you know, to a degree. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the problems that you know changed and right. But they they were changing NSW. I mean, they they were you know we went from a uh, sort of a deploy for a geographic specialty to a uh, deploy for um, well, we're going to take everything. Mm -hmm. You know, each team is going to cover its. It's, it's part of the globe. Um, I'm not sure if that helped or hindered NSW. I, I don't know, and I'm not sure where we are right now and how that's. But yeah, they were they were me they were messing with the mixture, you know, mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. right right before you know 9/11 kicked off. That uh, uh, whatever they were trying to do, um, everything got sort of firmed up. Any other like particularly hairy operations you'd call from uh, Anbar on that deployment? That was the hairiest. That, yeah, yeah that it was, sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, the, the I'm trying to think of very funny ones. There, We did get uh, contacted once on a, uh, when we were inserting, um, we were we were intending to insert on a um, uh, on an assault. I was uh, always a you know, radio or RTO, so I always had a man pack radio. This is the first time that I wasn't going to have a, um, you know, a, a man pack. It was it was going to be the lightest I'd ever been, and I was I was pretty excited about it. <laughs> I didn't have a two hundred three. I had my short barrel on. I was uh, uh, right before we got off the boat. Somebody handed me a thousand yard reel of debt cord in a trash bag. <laughs> in a like, trash bag. Yeah, they whispered to me. He's like, carry this for me. He's like. Mother, <laughs> why, why a thousand yards? I don't remember the I don't remember the details thing? of the mission. I know I know that they didn't have to do it because we got contacted. We got ambushed on the river. Uh, there were four insurgents that popped up over a berm with AK-47s, and we were on those SOCRs. I think we uh, dumped ten thousand rounds in forty-five seconds at those guys. We killed one. One dropped dead from a heart attack. <laughs> I mean, ten thousand rounds coming over a berm at you—you'd drop dead from a heart attack. Horseshoes and hand grenades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty. Uh, that was funny. And uh, after that, rotating back home, what was what was the next uh, the next step for you in your, uh, your ne naval career? Next step for me was uh, I was uh, I went to grad school mm -hmm. and then uh, I helped um, refine some of our JTAC uh, equipment doctrine, and I I got out. So the Navy gave you time off in the middle of a war to go to grad school. Well, I was I. They didn't give me time off, but I was I was taking it uh, catch as catch can. Okay. Uh, I would. There were a couple classes that I would cancel. I'd have to. It was kind of a, a mess with GI Bill and everything like that. Okay. But. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty. Uh, 
pretty ballsy of you, quite frankly, to go to grad school while also being full-time active duty SEAL. Yeah, I I, I look back on it, and I'm, I don't know why I did that. (laughs) I don't know why I did this, but... Uh, there was something that got sort of unlocked, like I, on that first uh, deployment to to Europe. I, I mean, I was I'd always been a reader, but I'd never been as, uh, a disciplined reader, and um, hadn't really wanted to know, you know, wanted to know everything. And then once I got back from that deployment, I really kind of set set out on this, you know, plan. I was uh, I was I always had a book. I always was. What was your plan at that point? I didn't know. I mean, I uh, I considered a you know being an academic. I uh, I had applied to a couple of programs, uh, and when you apply to PhD programs for you know anything, you've got to have some sense of where what direction you're going to go. Yeah. And I had been reading, and I'd been somewhat interested in like Napoleonic War type stuff. You know, kind of the Napoleon like that 1815 or the the 1800 to you know 1918 period in Europe. So I was kind of Looking at that, I, I didn't know, you know, where where I could find a, either Napoleonic Wars, First World War. I liked that, you know, but I was, I was kind of angling toward a, you know, a career in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, I had shit grades though from college, and uh, you know, uh, a diploma from from Buds will get you <laughs> so far, and it's not going to get you into a PhD program at any reputable university though so was that tough for you to get out after achieving like your you know literal literally your childhood dream to be a seal and it was and you, and you regret it every day but i you know i had a i had a son at that point okay, and i yeah. you know you guys have kids and once you see that little guy that's um I, that's like to me a very courageous move because one of the things we've talked about on the show before is how when you're doing this, you, you when you're doing this job, when you're doing what you dreamed of doing, how it can become a very selfish endeavor, and the people in your life suffer for it, and it's very, it's very courageous, I think, and and very like. Um, yeah, I mean, I go back and forth on. It. I mean, it's a decision I've second guessed. I'll probably second guess it till the day I die. Yeah. I mean, I love the SEAL teams. I mean, I I wrote this, you know, as you know, I this is my love letter to the SEAL teams. Yeah. Um, but I love those guys more. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, when all is said and done, when you're fifty and sixty and broken down, <laughs> the SEAL teams are only going to love you back so much. But, yeah. Well, you yeah. know, but. You, you know, family, hope, you know, hopefully is, you know, hopefully you get along. Feeding you apples. Yeah, exactly. Drooling on yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pushing around your wheelchair. Because um, the VA hasn't so, taken care tell of you. Guy, tell so, you damn things <laughs> about the war in Iraq. What do you know? So when did the idea, or when did, when did you start thinking about this book? Um, but after that deployment, I got back. Um, uh, that's true to a you know, to a degree. I'd always known, like I said before, that I was going to, at some point, write a history book. I didn't know if that was going to be as an academic. I didn't know how. But I didn't start thinking about this book until I got back from that deployment. I got back from that deployment, and I went to see my grandparents, the grandfather I was really close to, my grandma. We were very close. She, um, I I was over there to, to eat, and uh, at one point, she asked me, "You know, what the hell were you doing in Iraq? You're a sailor." Like, mm-hmm. I was like, I was, you know, 
probably three weeks away from, you know, that uh, firefight that I've been in, uh, two weeks away from going to the hospital and being the liaison at Bethesda with Mark's family. And for some reason, I, I kind of answered that question a little bit rudely. Like I, I said, you know, I wasn't, a, I'm not a sailor grandma, I'm a Navy SEAL. Mm -hmm. uh, for some reason, I, I don't know if it was because I answered that way, I don't, you know, to someone who clearly loved me and was just curious about, you know, what I was doing there. Or if it was just a really good question. Um, but I know, you know, she had no, she had context. You know, mm -hmm. she was not a completely uneducated person. She, uh, she lived through World War II. Uh, she was the oldest of eight. And she, she had seven brothers. All seven of them had served in the U.S. Navy during World War II. And she knew that sailors, you know, they fought on ships. They mm -hmm. fought, they, they were at sea. They did not go ashore. And... You know, here I was returning from, you know, a, a war that she had seen on the news that would look like a desert uh, or, you know, towns in a desert, and uh, she didn't understand it. Mm. And I didn't understand it either. And uh, the question just kind of stuck uh, in my head. It stuck there for like three years, four years, until I really... Uh, um, I... It, it was. I got out in 2010, um, and I, you know, it was a year later. You know, one SEAL teams, you know, killed Osama bin Laden. Three months, four days after that, the extortion one seven tragedy happens, mm -hmm. and it seemed like a remarkable, you know, occurrence. Both of the, you know, the, you know, this, both of these things happening this close together, both of these things happening, one in Pakistan, one in Afghanistan, both events occurring more than, you know, 600 miles away from the closest salt water. It's like, I, like, I, I need to know the, I need to know the answer to this. Why are we there? Why do the, you know, how has uh, the Navy justified this or how is, you know, a naval unit justified this? This book was partially you trying to process your own experiences. In Absolutely Navy. it is. Yeah. You know, and when I, um, when I started, you know, thinking about history and started thinking, like, you know, about writing books, I was always sort of critical of people that were like, uh, that wrote history just about, you know, uh, things that had affected them. Like mm -hmm. I was, I was critical, or I, I wasn't critical. I wasn't. That's not the right word. But I, I would always like, you know, uh, black historians that were only interested in slavery, or Jewish historians that were only interested in the Holocaust. Um, but we all come to history that way. Mm -hmm. Like we all want to know about ourselves, and this is me trying to understand, you know, this monumentally important experience for me. Um, just like, you know, them writing those books, you know, about those, you know, things that are monumentally important for them. That you know, they're trying to understand, you know, family history, and we, and you know, I came to uh, history first, and we all come to history first by, you know, stories that our, you know, grandparents and our parents tell us, you know, the times that they lived in. You know the the major events that they've experienced. Um, anyway, that was. But Jack, can you hold the book up real quick? Yeah. Um, I I posted it before. I'll post it again. The link to the book and uh, for Amazon, wherever you buy your books, I'm just just uh, convenient it's link. It's in the description also. And it's also in the description. Um, available on Kindle. Is it out on an audiobook? It is. Yes. Yeah, audio. Kindle. Um, it's not paperback. Uh, hardcover right now? Hardcover. The publishers decided to push it a year before they paperback it, so which is great. Uh, it's on yeah. the third printing right now. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's really good. By Water Beneath the Walls. I'm, uh, I got like 50 pages left in the book, full disclosure, but uh, it's really good, um, really well written, and uh, unexpectedly controversial in a few places. <laughs> Some choice words for William Darby. Uh, uh -oh. Wild Bill Donovan takes a, a tongue lashing from you <laughs> in this book. Um, even the first seal, who's it? Roy Balm. Uh, oh, yeah. You tear his book up. Yeah. Um, even there's even a racial tirade against the Irish in here that we're all criminals <laughs> and cops. I couldn't believe. You're all, wait, you're all what? Criminals or police officers? Yeah. That sounds the, about right. The twin forks of East yeah. Coast Irish destiny. That sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you're not a police officer, Jack. I'm the guy who, you know, we're in Brooklyn, so I'm the guy when I show up at the party, everyone looks at me like, that's the Fed right there. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, I, I mean, I, I appreciate that it, it is a kind of a critical look at U.S. military history. It's not just about the about um, the naval commando or maritime maritime commando mission. It's not, no. It, it, there's a lot in here about uh, the Rangers, about special forces. Um, about CIA to a, to some extent, yeah. um, Force Recon gets a little bit of attention. Uh, Charlie Beckwith gets a little bit of attention in Project Delta. Um, so I mean, why, it's, why don't you tell us, Ben? What is because this is not an attempt to be an all-encompassing U.S. special yeah. operations history. Nope. What is it, it? What is it that you were trying to accomplish with this book? So one, I didn't want to write a comprehensive history of naval special warfare. Uh, that seemed boring to me. Mm -hmm. um, partly because I think other people had tried it, uh, and it I didn't I didn't see anybody that had succeeded. Or Kelly had tried, Kevin Dockery had tried, Barry Dwyer had tried, um, Bill Doyle tried. And I think some of the reason that these books weren't interesting, or they weren't successful, or they weren't uh, um, compelling, captivating, whatever you want to say, is because they you start. You're you're, ta you're you're taking on eighty years of history, mm -hmm. and you're trying to tell this in three hundred pages. Mm -hmm. how, how do you how are you going to decide what's important? Mm -hmm. You know, in that eighty years, except um, you know, what's interesting to you. Mm -hmm. I knew that this book would need something to you know pull you pull you through it. I knew, and I I've never I never wanted to write a, a book with sort of a thesis or like an argument to you know try to make, but I needed something that was going to take a reader you know from the beginning and just drag you through to the end. So I needed a question that, that needed to be solved, um, and that question you know that I settled on was you know how did the U.S. Navy, the least likely, excuse me, the least likely branch of service, come to create you know the country's first permanent land-focused commando unit. It's a completely unlikely history, so it's not really, like I said, it's not a comprehensive history. It's more like a, um, I almost like to call it a biography of NSW, or at least an early biography of NSW. Like it's like a, if you read, you know, Hamilton or you know even uh, Montefiore's book on Jerusalem. It's not, it's it's a you take that central character, and you use that central character as a vehicle to introduce you to all these other little stories that, mm -hmm. you know, are, are sort of surrounding that, that thing. Um, so it's not, it's a, uh, um, and it's, that's what it is. It's a book that uh, it never tries to um, describe everything that happened to the SEAL teams. 
it really is just trying to describe why the Navy created this unit, this commando unit, first. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to tell that story, you have to tell why all of these other institutions, the Army, the Marine Corps, the OSS, the CIA, why they didn't do it first. Mm-hmm. That's why each chapter is kind of alternates. The book's about 50-50 Navy, Army, Marine Corps, CIA. So I, I alternate. So, you know, I, my, this is the, probably the only book that's ever going to be written about the SEAL teams that starts with a chapter on the Marine Corps. Uh, and then NSW, then Army, then NSW again, then it just kind of bounces back and forth. Did, when you started the book with that question in your mind from your grandmother, did, was that your intent or did, did sort of your idea for the book change over time as you were writing it? It did. It, it, it changed. Um, it went from being so that, you know, the, the question that my grandmother asked was just, you know, what the hell is a, sa- a sailor doing in the middle of Iraq? It went from that to how did the U.S. Navy come to create the country's first so it, it did. It modified over time, and, and part of it modified, you know, for selfish reasons. Like, I, I didn't want to tell that history. I didn't right. want to tell just the SEAL team history. I wanted to find all these other stories about, I selfishly wanted to know them, you know. I wanted to know about the Rangers. I wanted to know about the Green Berets. I wanted to know about Marine Force Recon and the OSS. I was looking for some sort of vehicle that would let, let me do that. This question seemed to let me do that. Um... So that it sort of it kind of shifted as I was, you know, you're a writer. You've confronted you know this you know the cursor on the page and it's miserable. It's a you know and it just I was able to find it eventually, but yeah, it took a lot of hard work you know writing that first chapter to kind of massage this question or this thesis into something that would allow me to do all these other things. In the in the book, you make reference to like. Naval infantrymen and Navy SEAL Rangers. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it hurts. I mean, I, I know it hurts. What's, I, what's happening? But doesn't it, happening? doesn't it hurt you when you read about your institution, you, the U.S. Army, constantly ripping the rug out from under? You know. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a, there's um there's a truth to what you're writing though that the Navy is continuously trying to get in on the action. Uh, um, but there's also uh, a capability that that's a legitimate that needs to be built. Um, whether you're talking about the um, the the uh, explosives uh, demolition guys in World War II, a D-Day, um, or even the guys who start you you know spend quite a bit of time talking about how the Navy starts venturing further and further inland. Yeah. Um, why don't we Why don't we talk? Take it from the top, then. I mean, you really start the book talking about World War Two, right? Where Where does this book start off? What's your jumping off point? Uh, my jumping off points: uh, the Marine Corps raiders uh, and the raid on Macon Island. Mm-hmm. And the reason I start there is because that is both chronologically, um, it's the first, you know. Uh, modern commando experiment that the U.S. military, you know, undertakes. Two, it's a commando experiment that the Marine Corps had no interest in, and they only did it because their parent service, the U.S. Navy, wanted them to. So it's got to, it's got dual relevancy. You know, it's uh, it's this. You know, it it's first. Uh, it sets a it sets a standard or an example. It's the first. Um, it's the first one that American, the American people know about. Uh, within a year, or within 14 months, I think, of the, the raid, there's a movie about it. 
Uh, so um, every American knows that you know there's there are American commandos, um, and two, it telegraphs this you know uh, you know the Navy's interest in creating something like this. Mm. So it seems relevant to me that you know for the institution that ultimately created the first permanent commando unit in the U.S. military, it seems interesting that you know 20 years before that they were already you know telegraphing that they wanted to do this. And it makes a lot of sense, I guess, in, in my mind and probably in a lot of people's minds that this is the capability that would be the purview of the Marine Corps, right? Right. That the Marines go out with the Navy, they're on the ships, and they provide that capability of making, I mean, it's the... Force projection. Well, and they're, right. they're term amphibious, right? right they're right. going from, right. from the right. sea to the land, right? Right. Why did the Navy seize on this capability? Um, as you were going through your research and writing this book... Why is the Navy so hard on, on this particular subject? Well, the Navy has always had, the Navy, every Navy, not every Navy, but every expeditionary Navy, the Royal Navy, the American Navy, and those, um, they have always developed a Marine Corps, a, a semi-maritime force, or a semi-maritime army uh, to project, you know, force from the sea. Um, but at the beginning of World War II, and you have to sort of go back to World War I, so, at, in World War One, uh, and this is one of the things that gets cut. You know, they got the the, the editor uh, really he, he cut it out of the book, and it was it's incredibly painful to pull it out. But I wrote this uh, uh, this section of the book about you know how the Marines had done incredible um, uh, work in in World War One in the trenches of World War One, and then they you know fought out of the trenches, and they had uh, they they'd done this because the army. Um, uh, at least in the beginning, hadn't done very well. The Marine Corps, at the beginning of the First World War, is the most competent uh, uh, land warfare force that the U.S. military has. Uh, they demonstrate uh, an ability to be much more than just the Navy's sort of utility force. Um, so, after World War, or after World War One, that's what the Marine Corps starts to see itself as. They don't see themselves any longer as this, you know, stepchild of the U.S. Navy. They start to see themselves as, why can't we be just like the Army? Mm. Why can't we be a maritime version of them? Mm. And all of their leaders, you know, want the same thing, or at least um, they have this ambition to, you know, modify the force, to grow the force, and and that's what they do. And when this opportunity to create commandos comes along. That's the old Marine Corps. We want the new Marine Corps. We want the Marine Corps that can uh, seize an entire island, mm -hmm. not just raid an island. We want a Marine Corps that can you know, conquer an island. So it's all about, you know, I, I don't, um, I never talk about anybody in the, I, I don't want to convey that any of these leaders are failures, but they, they just have different priorities. You know, the you know Holcomb is not a failure because he doesn't see the opportunity of Marine Corps Raiders. He sees an opportunity for a Marine Corps that is the Marine Corps we know today. Mm -hmm. um, but there are consequences to, you know, having those preoccupations. Right. And, yeah. and, and we've seen this with the Marine Corps all the way up until, like, recent history where where the Marine Corps was an elite force. So the Marine Corps was not going to have elite forces within the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like they missed out on the JSOC budget. You know, they missed out because they, they were still, they still maintained that, right, they, that sort of mentality. That right. we're all, the whole Marine Corps is an elite force. We don't need right. 
a specialized unit within ourselves. That's this undercurrent, and and at some point that undercurrent or that uh, uh, that bias or whatever you want to call it, that is consequential. Yeah. That comes into a, uh, that comes into play. Uh, that, that helps to disband the, the raiders, it helps to disband the rangers later, helps to disband the rangers again. Um, but yeah, this, this idea that, you know, we don't need an elite force. We're all elite already. Right. And they have a point. You know, I mean, you've, uh, particularly as wars, as these, as these wars or conflicts continue, um, the Marine Corps raiders, they were the best that the Marine Corps had, you know, uh, in August of 1942. Uh-huh. They weren't the best that the Marine Corps had after Tarawa, you know, a, le- a year later. The best the Marine Corps had were those guys that survived that, and they really knew what combat was, or the guys that, uh, you know, went through the Guadalcanal campaign. Like, they had they had a point. Yeah, your book talks a lot to, a lot of things I didn't know about the politics, and it gets into quite a bit about the personalities and in some sense, I, I think you can see why the U.S. military is as good as it is because of inter-service rivalry. And yeah. People are competing, and I want to be the best at this mission. I want to be better than you, which creates a better force uh, in the long term. But in, in other times, the competition becomes quite petty, and we start <laughs> duplicating capabilities, and all sorts of stupid stuff starts happening. Yeah, if you had a, if we, uh, if we wipe the slate clear. Uh, and and decided that we were going to build a military from scratch on this board right here. We would not build the military that we have. Right, right. We would probably not have fighter jets spread across three different services. No. And, yeah. we have we have two separate navies. We have two separate armies. Uh, we have three separate air forces. I mean, and now we have. Spe- I mean, we special ops is like its own. thing. Special yeah. ops is its own thing. We yeah. would have one. You know, we'd have, one, but. But you're right. There is an advantage, I think, and it's a hidden advantage, and it's not, you know, it's not immediately obvious. But there, you know, the military or the, it's a bit like a market in that way. And these egotistical personalities that are trying to carve out their little empire. Yeah, and there are these you know, the entrepreneurs. I mean, yeah, yeah. there's not entrepreneurs aren't just you know, you know, <laughs> confined to you know the world of business. There's you know, half the guys that not half the guys, almost all the guys that I write about are entrepreneurs. They're just entrepreneurs within a, you know, a military context. Right. Well, so. and I mean, they're big personalities, right? Back with uh, uh, um, they are Marchenko. Like they're they're big personalities to to sort of carve out that that. Yep. Yeah, I mean, arguably, fight. yeah, those capabilities wouldn't be created if not for a guy who's a quote unquote hardhead or hothead or. You know, what, a charger, whatever, yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever you want to per, yeah. <laughs> pejorative term like you want to apply. An entrepreneur. You know? I mean, uh, Buck Halpern, he's one of the guys that I write about initially. Um, he's the uh, he's the Jewish uh, Notre Dame quarterback. He's an NFL quarterback, and then he, I mean, he, you know, he fights through all of World War II. Um, he goes from being a uh, a scout boat driver or a landing craft driver all the way to uh, being a ground force commander of Navy-led Chinese guerrillas in China. Like, he, he, he's, his, his career spans this whole thing. And then after the war, he goes back to Chicago. He runs his father's light company, and he starts business after business. He started L.L. Bean. Oh, really? Yeah, like, he, I mean, he, <laughs> like, I mean, some of these guys are, they, you know, and, and Phil Bucklew, who I write about, he, you know, on the day that uh, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, 
he was recruiting guys for a new football team, an NFL football team that he was starting in Columbus. Like these guys were go getters. Yeah, they're go getters, but they've got this. You know, they they see gaps, mm-hmm. just like you know every entrepreneur does. They see a gap, and they're trying to fill that gap. They, mm-hmm. I don't know I, if you ever you know contracted. But when I when I contracted, the one thing that I noticed about all the guys that I worked with was they all had schemes on the side. <laughs> You know, I'm sure you. Like, <laughs> you like, like they had like some sort of like multi marketing, uh, multi level marketing scheme, and something like that. They have the Western Union receipts that they're sending well, to their or, Filipino or a wife. Training company, yeah. they're starting. You know, a, a kit company, yeah. gear. They're you know something. They're yeah. all working on something. Bob, Bob um, uh, Wagner, who I write about uh, later in the book, he, he comes up with the uh, the PRUs, the PRUs. You know the CIA um, provincial you know, reconnaissance, the unit. provincial reconnaissance units they, that sort of teach that that cycle of capture kill operations mm-hmm. to the rest of the military. Mm-hmm. He develops this thing. Uh, you know, it doesn't best as I could tell. I don't think the guy ever slept, but he's developing this thing while running two separate bars in Vietnam <laughs> that he bought, ran, and yeah. I mean, some of these guys were just. Insatiable entrepreneurs. I'd like to hear you talk about the Navy demolition teams that hit Omaha Beach and, and other places, other areas in uh, on D-Day. I thought that was just an incredible holy shit story in your book. It is, uh, yeah. Um, that uh, that chapter was a real challenge in the in the sense that I had I could uh, you you could have written a chapter on each of the gap assault teams. Yeah, yeah. Three gap assault teams are so for the listeners or the the viewers, uh, there are twenty one separate gap assault teams that were uh, assigned to a different section of Omaha Beach. Uh, their they were respond they they were uh, their mission was to blow sixteen gaps uh, on Omaha Beach that tanks could land on and then push into the hinterland. Um, the, uh, the army, this would normally have been an army mission. It would have been an army engineering mission, except for the, uh, the, the fact that the, uh, Navy had somehow managed to, um, convince the army that the Navy was in charge of every invasion until the, the army was firmly established ashore. Um, and it ended up being both, right? Because they needed everybody they could get. It did. So, so it became the, the gap assault teams become a joint unit, and that was the, one of the interesting things I found in, in the book is that is naval special warfare doesn't necessarily, you know, they're not always pushing themselves ashore. It's just they kind of like hitch themselves to the next wagon that's going, you know, that's going that direction. Mm-hmm. So the scouts and raiders, they, you know, they attach to the army, uh, they attach themselves to the uh, army engineers or the gap assault teams. They later um, attach themselves. Uh, to the Marine Corps uh, when they're doing um, um, uh, railroad raids in, in Korea. Were, weren't there even a couple stories where they did their, their naval demolition mission and then just like kind of jumped into the stack with the Marines? They lob, did. Lobbing hand grenades and stuff. They did. The, the sailors, they jump in, the UDTs 1 and 2. They, uh, they it, it, uh, The invasion of uh, Kwajalein and Roy Namur, Namur they, they follow uh, they follow the Marine Corps inland and they uh, they fought inland combat before anyway but to get back to the, yeah, the combat demolition units they it absolutely was a it was a joint unit army navy blow these obstacles blow these gaps so the army can push ashore and uh they suffer 
uh, some of the most devastating uh, casualty um, uh, numbers on D-Day. Uh, so devastating that they, uh, that the, uh, the the naval combat demolition units at Omaha Beach, our are uh, awarded one of just three presidential unit citations that are um, given out to Navy units uh, for that action. Um, but I think 31 are killed, uh, I think another, some 60 are wounded, it's a 51 or 52 percent uh, wow. casualty rates. I mean, five times higher than, you know, the charge of the light brigade at Balaclava. Yeah. It, it sounded just so horrific, and I, I mean, it will jump in whenever I'm saying something that's historically inaccurate, but these guys jump in, they, they get in there, and there are all these uh, maritime obstacles, you know, metal obstacles and so on, and mind obstacles that are out in the out in the surf there. And these guys have to go out there under MG42 fire and start planting explosives on them to destroy those obstacles so the landing craft can get into the beach. Correct. And meanwhile, they're just getting chewed up. They are. And... Um, and what I didn't realize is how you know kind of uh, nonlinear the the invasion happened on Omaha. Yeah. I mean, some some um, so the, the the intention was that the tanks land first, uh, the gap assault teams land second, the waves of infantrymen land third. That's um, not really how it happened. Some uh, some sections, uh, Fox Green, uh, Dog Green, uh, you know, Easy Red, uh, uh, different things are happening at different sections of the beach. So. Uh, on one section, the the section that uh, 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 Bill Freeman lands, he lands. He's the he's the first landing craft to touch touch down on Omaha Beach. To his right, he can see Point to Hawk, where the Rangers are 45 minutes late. He's, he he knows that he's supposed to see Rangers up there. There are no Rangers. He lands. There's no machine gun fire. He doesn't know he doesn't know what to do. So he just runs ashore and starts planting up uh, planting bombs on uh, on obstacles. It's not that doesn't happen, you know, everywhere else. Three, like I said, three, three landing craft, three gap assault teams are uh, completely destroyed before they get out of their landing craft. Two by mortars, one by just completely by machine gun fire. Um, yeah, it's a. I mean, it's it's still the most significant. Uh, contribution that naval special warfare has has given to the country I yeah mean, it's the most important day the most important mission uh the highest number of casualties yeah and what's interesting though about that about that uh about the 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 naval the the ncdus that fought there is they'd all gone through hell week oh, they're really? the first mm -hmm. uh group that has gone through hell week hell week was invented by sort of uh, invented by Draper Kaufman. It was this Draper Kaufman, if you... Uh, I don't know how to describe him quickly. He's the weirdest guy that I write about in the book. I mean, he's just, he's a, he's a weird guy. Like, he's... Like, what, what, are, what's, what, are, what is a weird fact about him, or one or two weird facts? He got kicked out of the Naval... Well, he didn't get kicked out of the Naval Academy. He got dropped from the Naval Academy because he has bad eyesight. His, his eyesight is so bad that he, they, even when the war, war starts, they don't want to let him back in. But he has this, uh, you know, weird biography where he... World War II starting, he volunteers for the French Army, he serves as an ambulance driver, he, he fights through, uh, you know, the German invasion of France, then he gets... He becomes a POW. He gets released, you know, on, uh, you know the um, uh, 
uh, condition that he'll never take our arms against the Third Reich again. He immediately volunteers for the British Navy. <laughs> you know, he fights through the Blitz as a bomb disposal guy. Then he gets repatriated to the United States Navy. He gets put in charge of this bomb, uh, not, not before he, you know, dismantles a bomb at Pearl Harbor and wins the Navy Cross, but then he gets put in charge of this bomb disposal unit to come up with a way, you know, to defeat these obstacles on Hitler's Atlantic Wall. And he, you know, being the one person in the U.S. military at that point who's seen the most of World War II, he knows how horrible combat is, so he comes up with this training curriculum that is equally horrible. And he goes to the Scout and Raider program. They have this eight-week-long, you know, uh, uh, conditioning course that they've developed. You know, all developed by former NFL athletes. It's supposed to be pretty, you know, you know, tough. It's eight weeks long. It's eight weeks long. He knows that he only has, you know, uh, a very short time you know, to train his guys. So he's like, can you take this eight week long course and compress it into five days? I guess. <laughs> so they do. And that's how Hell Week comes. Hell Week, Hell Week is just this Scouts and Raiders, you know, eight week long curriculum smashed into five, you know, sleepless days. And then not only does he create that, but he puts himself through the course. So wow. Even though he was kind of like an older guy and like not in particular older, good shape at that bad point. shape. He you know, can't see. He can't even qualify for the 2020 uh, vision standard that he sets for the rest of his guys. Yeah, he's a weirdo. <laughs> and then, and then after that, he fights through. You know, he volunteers for the UDTs in the Pacific, and he leads, you know, the UDTs through you know some of the most you know consequential battles of the war. Yeah, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about the the stuff that they did in the Pacific also? Because some of those stories were just like batshit crazy when they're coming up on the surf and they're kind of like taking depth measurements while they're getting shot at and stuff. Yeah, that was the one that I, so that was my chapter, that was, that was my fifth chapter. I started researching that chapter before I started researching any other chapter. Mm -hmm. um, and I was still researching that chapter 10 years later when I finished the book. That was one of those chapters oh, wow. that I was like, this is a hard chapter to, to compress because, um, Kelsey Kaufman, Draper Kaufman's daughter, um, I, I, I can't even remember how I found her, but she could not have been kinder, could not have been nicer. She invited me to her home. She gave me complete access to, you know, her dad's, uh, you know, uh, file cabinet full of papers. He kept everything. So this book has information in it that has never been published before. No, never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, like yeah. primary source material. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I'm going to take a break to cry, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it took a, it's, it took a lot. It, it's amazing. I mean, it really, yeah, and it, like, it's humbling. Like I was saying, like, I like to think like I'm somewhat well-read, like there's stuff in this book I never knew, even the stuff about like uh, Bill Donovan and things I had just never read about before anywhere. It was, it was really amazing. So I'm sorry, continue, please. <laughs> no, I, so, yeah, so it was. It was the, probably the first chapter I started researching. It was, a de it was there were two chapters that I was, you know, kind of neck and neck at the end that I was still working on finishing writing. But chapter five, the UDT chapter, was was one of them. And it was the problem with that was there was just so much information. the The reason that the UDTs are important to the history of the SEAL teams is one, they were pulled from the UDT. The SEAL teams were pulled from the UDTs. But two, um, the underwater demolition teams, the UDTs, are the only special operations unit that survived World War II. 
They're the only unit that does not get disbanded. The Raiders are disbanded, the Vac Recon is disbanded, the Devil's Brigaders are disbanded, the Rangers are disbanded. Uh, OSS. OSS is disbanded. Everything. Uh, they're, all, they're all gone. So um, the Navy, you know, takes all of the, you know, that institutional knowledge that they've managed to accrue during that, you know, four years of terror, and they compress it into these two underwater demolition teams that, you know, survived the war. Mm -hmm. And so even though that the even though the underwater demolition teams don't do any commando operations during the war, mm -hmm. they're the only guys standing at the end of it, so they start to think, hey, maybe we're commandos. Um, but yeah, so they, the operations that they go on are, they're, they're absolute, I mean, so when we were talking off, offline, I, there, there are certain characters in the book that have stuck with readers, um, but there are certain uh, units that have also stuck with readers, and the one that I, I get the most questions about are the UDTs, which I thought was just sort of common knowledge. It's not like I, the the fact that there were these guys that uh, in nothing more than dive masks, swim trunks, and dive fins, and a K bar, and a K bar, <laughs> and a and a and a slate to mark you know you know depths on. They they swam you know in you know completely. You know, naked almost. You know, up to these you know beaches um, to record findings. I I think for whatever reason, it's it's stuck with people, and and for good reason. I mean, the the risks that those guys ran. I mean, I, there's stuff. I mean, there's so much in this book. Some of it, like you only like almost allude to with a couple sentences, is probably stuff that you had to omit for for length. Like yeah. dudes coming across the shore and derailing a sixteen-car Japanese train, and I'm like, "What the fuck? I've never <laughs> heard about this shit before." Like, how, this happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For brevity, like, I yeah, you 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 find yourself like, I mean, for the UDT chapter, I probably left thirty pages on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Like a one where there's like a UDT below like a a, a Japanese pillbox. And the machine gun's <laughs> coming out, and the guy's like lobbing a hand grenade up there, and like, what the hell? Uh, out of curiosity, w because you know, like the CBs were really active, you know, like war, you know, uh, from World War Two and on. Right. Uh, were the UDTs originally? Were they sort of part of that construction battalion? And then how did they? They how are. Did they well, they their own personality. Uh, sort of. So the unit that my grandfather was in, he was. Uh, I, I he had a picture of his. Uh, uh, the unit that he uh, volunteered for. So after, after, when he volunteered for the underwater demolition teams, um, they called them the 11th Special Seabees. But there was a there was a connection between the Seabees and the underwater demolition team. So about 40% of uh, recruits for the UDTs, uh, initially the UDTs are a joint unit, Army, Marine Corps, UDTs. After they first two UDTs, they get rid of the Army and the Marine Corps volunteers and they make it an all-Navy outfit. In part, they make it an all-Navy outfit because the Navy, or the commander in the Pacific, he doesn't want anybody to have any sort of authority over this unit. Uh -huh. He wants this to be a completely Navy unit. Um, he's tired of dealing with the Marines. He doesn't want them to be able to take anything away from him, so he, he makes it an all-Navy unit. Um, but uh, what was the question again? Uh, about the CBs, how? Oh yeah, so the CBs. How, so, how this, how the UDTs right. managed to peel off? So they, so the Navy at that point, you know, with no other, um, uh, you know, service branches to contribute, you know, to this unit, 
Um, they need every swimmer in the fleet that they can get. And the Seabees, they have a pretty robust training uh, camp at Camp Perry. So about 40% of the uh, recruits to the UDTs come from the Seabees. Another 40% uh, come from the um, uh, the Fort Pierce NCDUs, and the remainder just come from wherever they can, wherever they can get them in the Pacific Fleet. Anybody that can swim. So they put them through a you know a little pressure cooker of training in Maui. But the UDTs were never like part because I I thought a lot I thought that the like that the UDTs originally started out as part of a construct as part of the CBS as part of the construction. Program. No, they're they're the the UDTs are created out of whole cloth. Okay, but they do recruit a, a significant number okay. of their of their swimmers from the CBS. From the CBS, all right, that's fascinating. And w why were all these other units? Uh, you know the Raiders, um, uh, the you know the OSS. Everybody that you talked about. Why are they all disbanded after World War II and the UDTs remain? So, that's a great question. The the um, and there's different reasons for all of them. Um, I I probably could have. I, I mean I I don't know that my editor thinks this, and I'm not sure that the readers think this, but I could have. The book could have been <coughs> twice as long. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it could have gone into the Devil's Brigaders. I mean, there were. Um, when I initially wrote chapter three, which is a, my chapter about Darby's Rangers, I, ha I didn't want to write about Darby's Rangers. I knew a little bit about Darby. I knew a little bit about Cisterna. I was just like, I, I don't want to touch it. I was more interested, selfishly, in the Merrill's Marauders in Burma. I really wanted to, mm -hmm. you know, write a chapter about Machikina, the the, the battle for Burma airfield. Yeah, that that seemed really attractive to me. I did a ton of research. I found a lot of stuff, and uh, the more I, I I read, the more I realized. This is not relevant to the story. <laughs> I needed to cover, <clears throat> I needed to find uh, after World War II. And the only, and the story that explained that was this raid on Cisterna. It was the most, um, it was the, it was the operation that uh, uh, convinced this entire generation of army planners that ranger operations, or rather commando operations, were, um, well, they, one, they were risky, but two, they could be performed by anybody. anybody. We, <clears throat> we didn't have to separate, you know, an entire group of, of people away from the rest of the Army, call them elite, and, uh, you know, say that they could do special, special missions. Um, but each unit is disbanded for various reasons. The, Ranger, or the Raiders are disbanded because <clears throat> the Marine Corps doesn't, you know, they don't want right. Raiders. The Rangers are disbanded. Primarily because of Cisterna, because of this, you know, this aftertaste that, you know, this whole horrible debacle, the 700. Sending light infantry up against like a Panzer uh, battalion or whatever is probably not the best decision. It's a terrible decision. I mean, the whole, <laughs> I mean, you and I, the, the, you know, researching that chapter, writing that chapter, I, I had to, uh, when I was doing my research at uh, all, the all the archives that I was doing it at, I, I'm, I was very disciplined to not look at what I was grabbing. I was, I was really just, I would pull entire boxes out, I would pull folders out. I was like, okay, this, yeah, I need this. And I would take picture, 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 picture. And then I would move on. I would not read 
you know, the documents that I was reading. I would do that later. Mm -hmm. I would, uh, once I got home, I would print all these documents off. I would go through them and I'd highlight, I'd make notes and all, all the rest. That's when I did the, the actual reading, the processing of the, of the material. I wasn't, uh, I did not do that at the archive. I was, if, if you did that at the archive, you were wasting time. Um, the only time I violated my own rule at the archive was when I was at the uh, National Archive in uh, College uh, Station, Maryland, or College Park, Maryland, and I was uh, going through the, uh, uh, the transcript of Darby talking uh, to uh, the uh, 1st Battalion radioman um, at Cisterna, and all of those, all those transmissions are recorded. And I found myself no different than the reader is in the book, you know, you know, turning page after page, and I, I found myself getting emotional. I had to, I had to stop and take a break, because that history is right there in front of you, and those guys are literally, they're, they're dying in front of you, they're, and, and you know what's going to happen. Yeah, and you write about it in, in your book quite a bit about what was going on in the talk. What were they were in like a barn mm -hmm. at the time, and the commander is like having breakdowns. Like everyone's having breakdowns yeah. at various points, as like th these battalions are just wiped out, wiped out, wiped out. And like there's like rangers like charging tanks, like throwing hand grenades at them, and like crazy shit like that. Yeah. And the amount of carnage that happened in that war is like I just find it impossible to even conceptualize in my brain. Yeah, the ca the, the combat that I've seen is not combat if that's combat. Mm. You know what I mean, like. Mm. That World War Two, that World War Two generation, like, yeah, it's on a, it's a different, different level. It's a different thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> very different. I mean, even you know Omaha Beach, the way you describe it, you know, like, yeah. there were, there's nothing like that. It's a, it's a tornado. I yeah. mean, it's, there's nothing like. Yeah. Could uh, could you tell us the story about Mary Miles? I, I found that yeah. chapter very interesting in the book. It's about a, a rear guard action that happened in China to sort of draw resources away from the Japanese military. Uh, I had never heard about this before. Yeah. So I was learning about it for the first time, reading about it in your book, and I, I just thought this was, like, incredibly fascinating. Yeah, so um, to, a little backstory. This is a This is a chapter that I did not want to write. I, I was... I knew that this. I knew that this experience had happened. I knew that the Navy had, you know, raised a guerrilla army in China, uh, and they had, you know, led raids in China to sort of tie the Japanese down. At the time, I, I'd spent, you know, three years working on World War II, and I was really anxious to get into Korea. Mm -hmm. And um, I, my thought was, I was going to write about sort of the Navy's. Um, you know, guerrilla warfare experiences, and I was going to talk about, you know, China in a, in a sort of prologue or, a, you know, an introductory section to it, and I, I wrote up a couple paragraphs, and I was like, well, that's an interesting fact. I'm going to put that in there. And I found myself, you know, so page, a little long for an introduction. I was like, all right, two pages. I was like, when it got to ten pages, I was like, <laughs> mother, I knew I had to write, I had to double back on World War II. That chapter took a year to write. But it was so that uh, the experience that you're talking about is the the Navy um, creates a guerrilla army in China. So American planners at the beginning of World War II they see China as this you know 
huge opportunity to tie Japanese forces down. Jap Japan's been in there since 1936. 37? Something like that, like in Nanking. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So they've they've Manchuria. They, yeah. Um, they uh, there's a you know a huge number of like something like six hundred thousand Japanese soldiers in mainland Japan. Uh, they, mainland China. Ma mainland China, um, and they would like to you know raise a guerrilla army to see if they can tie them down and keep them from going to the Pacific. The uh, Bill Donovan wants to do this. Bill Donovan sees China as sort of the main theater of OSS operations. He he sees this is an area where he can uh, sort of be the the, the 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 ruler of this kingdom. Um, uh, the Navy sort of gets there first. They send this sort of unassuming uh, destroyer skipper uh, to China to sort of set up weather stations, and this unassuming. Uh, destroyer skipper just happens to have a personality that uh, is really well suited for the you know Chinese culture, and he um, ingratiates himself with the Chinese high command and manages to you know uh, exceed you know OSS expectations or OSS hopes, and uh, that's Mary Miles. He's a Mary Miles is a he's our Lawrence of Arabia for World War, War World, for World War Two, but he's he's there's nothing flashy about him. Um, he's a uh, he's a dad like he's a dad that goes to China and raises a hundred thousand man army, um, and uh, he's just he's totally like uh, and, unassuming. And, and he he gets uh, ingratiates himself with what like the intelligence head. Uh, Tai Li, yeah, yeah, Tai Li. Which yeah. is another like weird story about. Tai Li's a character, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, there's a movie there. I mean, you could definitely make a movie about the Navy in China or American. If it wasn't for, you know, Chinese domination of the film yeah. industry, I think you would, uh, there, there's a, there's definitely a movie there. Because they were, they were uh, who's it, Yet Sun? Was it the, Chinese, Sun Yat the Chinese Democrats? Well, yeah, Sun Yat-sen, he precedes all of them, but but uh, Ch Chiang Kai-shek, he's the he's the nationalist head, he's yeah. the gen General Isamo, and he Tai Li is his uh, is almost his number two. Mm -hmm. He's his mm -hmm. um, he's his J Edgar Hoover slash uh, um, Donovan rolled into one. I mean, he's and, uh, and Miles learns Chinese and. So Miles has done a Miles did a tour in China before, and Miles just as an observer, right? Sort of as an observer, sort of like that, uh, you know, sand pebbles type Navy um, uh, tour, and um, he's uh, he's an interested guy. Like he's a he he never develops like sort of the supremacy that most Westerners develop when they go to a you know an, an Asian country he, or at that time you know particularly. Um, you know, um, hostile. You know, uh, personality. Uh, he, he's. He, he. I don't know how else to describe him. He's just got this. Mm -hmm. He loves the Chinese in a way that you know other Americans don't. Like he, he doesn't look down on them. He, he sees them as equals, and he. Um, um, and I, I think that's why he manages to you know develop this relationship with you know Tai Lee, and Tai Lee. You know, in return, he gives him. Um, carte blanche authority but he he makes him a he makes a navy commander a general in the chinese army 
And you write about how this caused like major butt hurt between <laughs> Miles, who is a Navy officer, and the OSS, who are like Bill Donovan's. Like, we should control this. We should be we should be running this whole operation here. Like, why are you why are you here? This doesn't make sense. It doesn't. And I, I'm, um, yeah, and, and try try to say no to somebody like Donovan. Yeah, yeah. Like my my initial when I had sort of structured the book, I. I desperately wanted to write about Donovan. I wanted to write a, uh, I, I wanted to write a chapter about uh, the Jedbergs or the operational groups. I thought, you know, I mean, Donovan's such a rich character, you know, to you know, write about, to learn about. Um, I just couldn't find, I couldn't, I couldn't find, I couldn't find a way to him except in this chapter. Uh-huh. And then when I f- found myself, you know, writing about him, I found myself like. He's not a he's not a bad guy. He's a great guy. He's an he's a you know he's an um, he's an incredible American, but he's a he's a schemer. He fought a petty turf war in this. Yeah, he did. Yeah. I mean, and and you know, and anybody that's ever written about Donovan knows that. I mean, you know, Donovan's the one that uh, you know started uh, uh, telling people that Hoover was the one that was dressing in women's clothes. Oh, really? I didn't. Yeah. Even well, Hoover was the one that was telling everybody that Donovan was uh, sleeping with his daughter-in-law. I mean, they they had this, you know, ridiculous. You know, I'm not sure that uh, you know there's not any truth either. I mean, there there might be some truth to both of them, but they were they were the ones that were pumping these rumors out. Yeah. Donovan's absolutely a schemer, and he was doing everything he could to, you know, get rid of this, you know, um, this obstacle, you know, to him controlling China, and that's. Mary Miles, Mary Miles. I mean, you'd see him at a, a restaurant. You wouldn't, you wouldn't give him a second thought. If he was your mailman, you wouldn't think about him. And and what did, how did things end up turning out in China with Miles? Like again, <laughs> like these like little vignettes that you write about in the book, where it's like a couple of his Navy dudes like tie limpet mines to their backs and swim out into the, the the bay and like blow up some Japanese ship and all like again. It's like I never really realized this stuff happened before. Yeah, and they, I mean. They led, yes. They 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 lead, they lead cavalry. I mean, they blow up bridges. They uh, uh, they rescue missionaries. They um, uh, they uh, um, they the, the they the former UDT guys. No, the, UDT these guys. are these are uh, a combination of Navy and Marine Corps um, advisors that the Navy sort of cobbles together into this uh, unit called SACO. And SACO is the Sino-American Cooperative Organization. It's uh, sort of Meant to lead Chinese guerrillas, um, but they—it uh, becomes so much more than that. It becomes like a uh, um, uh, a testing ground for special operations, and they do ship attacks like you're talking about. They swim limpet mines up to ships, uh, and they—you know—when that one when that one goes, they order seventy more limpet mines. Uh, they lead, you know, like cavalry charges. They they um, uh, Buck Halprin. Uh, who I talked about the, the the Jewish Notre Dame quarterback, he ends up leading like a cavalry campaign against the Japanese in the last three weeks of the war, like just harassing them at every possible tan- ambushing him. Uh, you know, it's it's incredible. Uh, that's fascinating. It's a, it's a totally unknown yeah, you know and, and be- corner of the war. Yeah, and because they're off in like the the western part of China, I guess. Like you write about, like just resupplying these guys and getting them whatever they needed was like 
incredibly difficult <laughs> to, to fly that stuff in, and then yeah. ended up getting carried on like pack mules at a certain point. What were the, the some some camps? So, so they created oh gosh, I think it's sixteen separate camps um, throughout uh, China, and um, some of the camps you couldn't even get mail bags to <laughs> until one of the one river froze. And then you have to, you know, slide it down this river in a, um, oh, I can't remember the, oh, I can't believe I'm stumping myself. Damn you. Like Bruce a Island sled IPA. or something? It wasn't a, yes, it was a sled, but I can't remember what, uh, what kind of skin that they used in the, um, in the mail bags. It doesn't matter, but yes, I mean, they, they, everything out there was, you know, months removed from support. These guys were completely on their own. They did everything by themselves, um, and they managed to... You know, tie down six hundred thousand Japanese soldiers. Were six hundred thousand Japanese soldiers that could have been fighting on Marines. Yeah, right, and, right. Were, were the Flying Tigers supporting them? At this all? Is, that was that was before. That was before. Yeah, okay. That was before. That's fascinating. Let's. Uh, I'd like to jump forward and talk about uh, Watson, who's <laughs> another character in your story. That this guy is like absolutely larger than life. Yeah, and when people, yes, absolutely. Go yeah, ahead. yeah, and well, I was just gonna—I mean, we'll talk about it in a second, but I, I think there's lessons to be learned between that and some of the things we did, or, or the CIA did early on in Vietnam about when we try to re repeat the Jedburg process in, in Asian countries doesn't always turn out so well. Um, but tell tell us the, about the chapter you wrote about him. Yeah, Mary or uh, Martin Watson. He is, uh, you're right, he, I mean, he's a, he's a superhero. Yeah, a comic book he's character. He's a comic book character. Yeah. He's a, um, he joins the, I mean, he, he grows up in Connecticut. He, um, he, he uh, almost grows up in an orphanage. Uh, he's, uh, um, he's sort of raised by a grandmother and the, and the arch. Or the the Catholic diocese, but he, he grows up. He, he's sort of a a local tough. He gets you know beaten up by bullies, but he's in a part of the town that's you know part German, part Irish. So he learns to speak German and Irish, or uh, French, uh, Irish and or German and French. And um, <laughs> so when he he joins the army um, in World War II, he's a you know very valuable you know guy. He joins the Rangers and he fights. Um, from North Africa all the way to Cisterna, where he gets captured with the rest of Darby's Rangers. Uh, he gets released. He comes home to Connecticut. Um, and in between that period between World War II and Korea, he gets arrested uh, some 76 times by the local police for various things, fighting, drunken fighting, resisting arrest. The judge ultimately gives him a, you know, I mean, he most of uh, his incarceration is just done in jail. But the judge ultimately gives him a choice. You know, you go back into the army, or you go, you're going to prison. So he goes back into the army, rejoins the Rangers, and the, you know, the sort of the second iteration. Uh, and he gets, he, he leads um, in a sort of weird roundabout way. He gets put in charge of uh, this sort of hybrid Ranger, hybrid partisan. Uh, sort of Jedburg type mission to go blow up a rail uh, railroad tunnel. Um, lots of different factors uh, come in, into play, and ultimately the mission is a total failure. Um, Watson manages to uh, get three of or three of his American Rangers um, 
extracted, but he uh, ends up leading his surviving Korean comrades on a three-week-long, no-food um, mission just to escape to friendly lines. He gets captured. And his POW story is nothing less than... I mean, it's remarkable. Like, his, his survival during the... Like, uh, it's... Uh, I mean, that the entire story about them, like, basically, like, trying to E&E across Korea... It's insane. And it's it, snowing, it, and they're sending helicopters at one point after they finally get a camo check, and birds are going down, and like, what in the hell? It's a... Yeah. And the, it was a... I had a hard time finding... I mean, just writing that chapter, because I couldn't find, you know, the... You know, the corroborative material mm-hmm. to, you know, write the chapter on. It was one of those sort of weird things, like... I'm, I did a FOIA request for a POW record um, at the National Archives, and I just sort of hoping that there'd be a uh, you know a little couple page summary of his captivity. I'd seen these POW reports before, and they were always just a couple of pages. Um, they you know the the response was yes, we have a POW report with Martin Watson's information in it. Um, it hasn't been declassified, um, we'd be willing to declassify it, but you'd have to come here to, you know, to get it. And I was like, well, it was, I had just left the National Archives. I was living in Illinois at the time. It was kind of a a big effort for me to get back to, you know, Maryland. I was like, well, uh, we can't, you know, we can't send it to you. It's 750 pages. Wow. Well, I I mean, (laughs) I was like, well, it's in a, it's in a, I assumed it was in a 750-page, right. you know, folder or something right. like that. So I was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll look at it the next time I'm there. So the next time I was there, which is months, months later, and I'm still having trouble with this chapter, um, I requested the, you know, the, the box, and they brought it out, and I was expecting to pull, you know, his two pages out of it, and it was, no kidding, 750 pages all about him. That's amazing. Where they're trying to propagandize the GIs, and he was calling them commie sons of bitches. That's where it all came from. That <laughs> he was. I mean, and they, and those those uh, everything uh, from that chapter was taken from another POW. So they were interviewing POW after POW about Martin Watson. Like, <laughs> tell us about him. Like, and if there's anybody, if there's anybody that I write about in the book that is deserving of the Medal of Honor, it's it's, it's Watson. And, and this dude, after the war, it sounded like he went and lived a quiet life, working odd jobs, and his epitaph is a bit more problematic than that. I kind of, I didn't, I didn't put it in there for sort of a reason. He had, he had a rough, he had a rough go. He ended up dying of cancer. Um, uh, he, 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 he had a, a few kids. His son uh, was helpful, uh, very helpful in the, uh, the writing of the book. Um, he he ultimately realized. I, I think he realized that he was not able to live the sort of family life, mm-hmm. and he sort of removed himself from the situation. Went mm-hmm. to Alaska to work on pipelines. Uh, when he got cancer, he came home and he uh, was able to kind of somewhat reconnect with his kids. Um, his one son, I think he he saw him two dozen times or something like that. But and he, every time his son would come to the hospital to visit his dad. Uh, his dad made him, you know, knock out a password, and the password every time was courage. Wow. 
It sounds like a guy who was, you know, quite frankly, just damaged by the war. And the by two wars, yeah. 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 He was absolutely damaged. Being a POW. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the stuff that you describe in the book is horrific. I mean, any, not, any, anybody would. Yeah, and it's not just the war that, that damaged. I mean, his, his, his whole childhood was yeah. damaging. I mean, yeah, he, yeah. Was, he had a, you know, a horrific, horrific upbringing. I mean, that's why he survived two wars, because he was a hardcore dude. Yeah, yeah. Ref- refused to die. Yeah, there's parallels I think between him and uh, and Bob Gallagher, who I write about later in the book. They have mm-hmm. similar like orphan stories, and yeah, you know, similarly, uh, Bob Gallagher didn't have like the the legal trouble that Martin Watson had. Bob Gallagher's, you know, every bit is, you know, complicated and, um, you know, just the the trick. You know, I think when you're, you know. You want these guys in special operations. You want these guys in the military. The trick is, how do you get a guy like that into the military right. and then maintain... Channel it. Yeah, so they don't, like... Like Charles uh, Shunstrom, who writes the report. Charles Shunstrom was one of the rangers at Cisterna. And he um, he's captured, uh, manages to escape uh, three weeks later, and write, writes a report about the rangers... Uh, captivity or the the rangers capture at Cisterna, we wouldn't have a lot of the details that we have without his report, or le- at least the contemporaneous. Um, he he has a very uh, troubled, you know. He goes to Hollywood, tries to become an actor, I think, uh, but fails. He ends up robbing robbing liquor stores and banks and things, and ultimately, can't remember how he dies, but you know, probably not well. Trouble. No, not well. Yeah. What's as I. I we should. Let's talk a little bit about getting into. We don't have to end. I'm just gonna have to. Need, I'm gonna have to need a uh, facility break. Yeah, yeah. We, we you can take a facility break. Yeah, we no, can that, plug our. We can plug yeah, uh, that's okay. our, our patron and everything. Because uh, I mean, I know we're at two hours, but if you're you're here and if you're willing to keep talking, we're willing to keep asking. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Because this stuff is super interesting to me. Yeah. Anytime you want to take a break, just let us know. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about how that transition then post-Korea, I mean, the birth of the SEALs, right? You didn't set out to write a book, but I mean, <laughs> the byline is the rise of the Navy SEALs. When did that happen, That the, the transition where, I mean, the UDTs, or guys are taken from the UDTs and, and created SEAL teams, how does that come about? It's a, uh, it's a period that happens after... Um, so after Korea, after the UDT experience, um, it's, it's it's sort of bigger than the the UDT experience. It's the it's the Navy's experience, uh, you know, post World War II. So after World War II, you know, there's sort of a scrambling for resources, which always happens after a you know a war. It's happening mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the creation of the Air Force and the uh, like. The sort of the army, uh, the air force are convincing um, planners uh, that there's not much need for a navy anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the navy can sort of just, you know, sort of devolve into like a merchant marine mm-hmm. almost. Um, all the offensive capabilities are contained in the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Army. Uh, we probably don't need the Marine Corps anymore because the U.S. Army can do everything the Marine Corps can do. That's the that's the idea. Uh, the Navy sort of goes through this period where it's, um, you know, very, very self-consciously justifying its existence. You know, you know, not only, you know, 
are, are we not going to let the you know Marine Corps uh, sort of devolve into this junior partner? We're going to take a you know a more aggressive you know the, the, the Marine Corps gets you know. I don't know if it's an inappropriate uh, aggressiveness, but they they definitely are trying to get involved in any way that they can. Um, so when the probably the most aggressive uh, chief of naval operations uh, takes command, which is Arlie Burke, he takes command uh, in let's see, it's under Eisenhower, I believe it's 1956 that he he uh, takes over. Arlie Burke. Uh, pushes the Navy, drives the Navy um, into uh, creating a Navy that is every bit as connected to combat as all the other, you know, service branches in all sorts of ways. Um, he doesn't really um, come upon the SEAL concept until very, very late in his uh, term as uh, uh, CNO. But there's nobody like Arleigh Burke that I came across. Nobody. Um, there's nobody that has his stamina, there's nobody that has his uh, sort of hang-ups or his uh, uh, preoccupations or his, um, um, his commitment to keeping the Navy um, at, the, at the forefront of, um, of, of offensive combat. Um, and ultimately, you know, when he sees what's happening in the world, um, Lebanon's going off, Vietnam's mm -hmm. going off, all these, you know, hot spots around the world, mm -hmm. he's like, we need a force that can fight uh, in a sort of a guerrilla fashion, so he pushes his advisors to, um, you know, come up with, you know, creative ways to do this, and those advisors start to, you know, pull all those various experiences that have happened over the last twenty years into this single, you know, entity, um, and he he pulls in, you know, a really kind of diverse cast of characters to do this. One of the guys that he you know, pulls in and it got cut from the book is Arnold F. Shade. He gets put in charge of the Unconventional Activities Working Group. And Arnold F. Shade is, um, you remember, do you, did you guys ever see the movie U571? Yeah. 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 You remember the scene where Bill Paxton, he's the commanding officer, he orders, you know, Matthew McConaughey, who's the executive officer, to, he, Bill Paxton's in the water. He's gotten wounded. He, he knows that you know, the submarine's in danger. He orders the, uh, submarine to submerge beneath his body. He knows he's going to die, mm -hmm. and he orders his men to submerge, submerge beneath him. That really happened. That happened, that was the USS Growler, it happened in the Pacific, the, you know, the commanding officer gets wounded on the, uh, the deck of the submarine, and he's not going to be able to be pulled in. He's still on the deck of the submarine, he orders the men to submerge beneath him. He dies, and the executive officer that uh, ordered that was Arnold F. Shade, and Arnold F. Shade is the person who's put in charge, like, the Burke puts in charge of this, you know, committee, you know, to develop the, you know, where's the Navy going next? And Arnold F. Shade and the rest of the guys, they come up with this. You know, it, it honestly, though, if you look at it, I think from his perspective, like the Navy has a projection that nobody else has, right? You have, you have Air Force stations somewhere, you have Army stations somewhere, but the Navy... The, right. Right. They're projecting they're the, all the time. Right. And then if they have these internal units that can conduct these small acts, they have the Marines. But if uh, it makes sense when you're when you I think when you're looking at it, especially when he's fighting turf wars. Right. It, it, you're right. And when you do when you absolutely when you step back and you think about it, it's only it's only inexplicable on the surface. Right. But yeah, when you step back. And get a little perspective. Yes. Yeah. 
No, I mean, you could say, well, why, you know, they could take Marines on board, they could do this. But when he's fighting a turf war and he wants to be a one-stop shop or he wants to, you know, uh, you know, I mean, every every aspect of government is always trying to get more power, right? Every aspect. And especially when different branches of the military, because if the Army's saying we don't need the Navy, because at, during World War II, the, the Army had more boats than the Navy, I think. Uh, like, <laughs> right? I mean, well, yeah. larger. Not now, but then, uh, you know... You, when you're, nobody wants to lose what they have. No. But in the one, I mean, the only way, maybe not the only way, but in the one way that my book is somewhat controversial is that it goes sort of against this idea that the SEAL team sort of created themselves. Like, there, the, the myth that I grew up with, like, when, when I was a young frogman, is that, you know, that it was this, it was, you know, sort of enterprising, um, UDT guys that had come up with this idea for this unit in Korea and um, and all these conventional Navy brass or Navy officers are like, no, we're not going to do that. We're a blue water force and we're, you know, um, and then JFK comes along and supports these UDT uh -huh. guys and they create the SEAL teams. It's all bullshit. The Navy created this force. The Navy created this force for a reason. In some instances, the UDT guys were against it. Really, the Navy created this because the Navy wanted to project its power. Because right. the Navy had gone through this, you know, ten-year period of you know being the last dog at the bowl. Right, and they wanted to get you know more involved. They wanted to be relevant. And there's uh, some really good chapters in this book. There's one about the Bay of Pigs. Talks about the unique relationship between the UDTs and the CIA and paramilitary operations that I really think is worth people's time. There's a whole chapter about U.S. Special Forces, Colonel Yarborough, uh, yeah, I thought, yeah. JFK coming down. Like, again, a lot of stuff I didn't know about before. That was really illuminating. Um, I think to start to like wrap up this interview, though, I, I would like to kind of take us forward to the latter part of your book and talk about the SEAL teams in Vietnam when they, they really started to come into their own and show what they're capable of. Yeah, they do. So, I, I mean, the... I, I mean, I, I just talked about how, you know, the the SEAL teams didn't create themselves. They didn't. They absolutely didn't. The Navy created the SEAL teams. But the SEAL teams weren't the SEAL teams until Vietnam. Uh -huh. The SEAL teams become the SEAL teams because, I mean, the, the first detachment that gets sent to Vietnam, they get there and they really don't know what they're doing. Right, they've, yeah. they've prepared for... They've prepared for all the missions that they have anticipated, you know, the... the um, Dismantling trains, um, destroying command posts, you know, landing from the shore, sneaking inland, doing some sort of commando operation, and then you know sneaking away. Um, it's not until uh, Vietnam they get to, they get to Vietnam and they realize there are no missions like that. Right. There are no command posts. Right. There are no um, you know railroad depots or anything like that. So. They get there, the first, uh, the first detachment, the first commander, he, he says, this isn't what we trained for. And he essentially confines the guys to base. Um, goes and, uh, well, anyway, he confines the guys to base. The, the Navy planners, they don't, uh, um, they're, they're really upset. They're ready to kick the SEALs out of Vietnam. And it's not until Phil Bucklew intervenes that uh, uh, he says, well, we'll replace the detachment, we'll replace the leadership, and we'll get a new detachment in there. And that new detachment comes in, and 
the same thing. They realize that this is not the war they've trained for, but they also say, well, this is the only war in town. Uh-huh. We're not going anywhere. We're going to figure out how to do this. Uh, and they, they stay. They, they go out night after night, and it's just trial and error. And by that trial and error, they figure out this works, this doesn't work, this, this is good, we'll keep doing that. And they sort of manage to figure out that, you know, this jungle warfare is miserable, but there are ways to get it, you know, to make it easier for us. And Where did, I mean, how did they develop that? I mean, that's a huge like, sort of failure point, right? That, that's a big consequence for not getting it right. It's not a training exercise. I mean, is anybody there helping them out? Anybody? Nobody's helping them out. They're they're completely alone, and they're they're in their own battle space. This is they don't have any, they have no support, and they have no, um, they they have no uh, framework. They they've got no like uh, historical framework to go from. Right. They've got no, they've got nothing. They 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 get there. It's it's, I mean, at least you know when. You know, uh, my unit got to Iraq. We had some sort of idea. Right. You know what guys had done before. They get there and they're like. I guess they, did, they just started doing patrol and ambush. Um, it was really but even that, they, you know, as simple as the, 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 the words patrol and ambush are, you know, we know that it's not, you can't just give a farmer a gun and be, okay, now you're a soldier, right? Like, there's, there's a steep learning curve there. I mean, it, how do they... Were, were there a lot of casualties up top? Or, like, how did they learn? There that? were there were some initial there were initial casualties. Um, it was uh, they they knew that there was no there were no replacements. They they knew that they had to find some sort of method of operation that would one you know make them in, incredibly lethal, but also you know not uh, you know unduly risk the force. Sure. You know, a when Billy Macon gets killed, and Billy Macon is the first uh, SEAL killed in Vietnam, um, he, he's uh, you know the lo- his loss is 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 almost a a two percent loss for the entire team. Like you can't take ten Billy Macons um, and not you know completely dismantle the team. I mean, it's it's decimated at that point. Um, so they needed you know, they needed some some way to you know, be really lethal against the enemy while preserving the force. And they, you know, they ultimately settled on this intel-driven capture-kill raid. Like, gather as much intel as you can. And don't don't go out into the jungle to, you know, kill Viet Cong. Go out into the town, get as much intel as you can, and go and find that Viet Cong, that guy with a name. Mm-hmm. And then you bring him back, you ransack him for intelligence, and then you go back for you know the five other guys that he knew. And it wasn't until you know the seven platoon got there, um, uh, and it was sort of this combination of Bob Gallagher and Pete Peterson, and just being relentless in the battle space, but all you know using all the lessons learned from the guys before. And I think the, probably the most important thing you know that makes the seals special on this entire. Um, period is that you know they deployed as a group. Mm-hmm. You know nobody else was deploying to Vietnam as a group. Uh, Green Berets, uh, Lerps, everybody—they were individual augment, or individually uh, deploying to Vietnam. They didn't. They didn't. Uh, they hadn't. De- they hadn't trained mm-hmm. uh, together. They hadn't. Uh, um, you know, de- you know, they didn't know what each other looked like. They didn't know each other. What other, you know they. They didn't have the same tactics when they would get to Vietnam. They'd go out on a mission with guys they'd never been with before. 
I mean, and we know all these lessons now. We know that how you know how damaging that that is to mm -hmm. a small unit. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, they didn't know it. And you know, the Navy, you know, by virtue of you know the Navy, they deployed as a unit. They deployed as a ship. As a you know, there were no individual augmentations that were going on in the Navy. It was you deploy with your unit. And I think that alone is probably the structural reason that the SEALs were so successful. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's really impressive to think that, you know, you're not, they're not coming from an infantry background. They're not coming from a background steeped with this, you know, sort of, you know, uh, a knowledge base of land warfare. And then they went out there and, and I mean, they but really did. But they did. They, they learned it. And, and part of the reason that they learned it is from all of the, you know, they, they got so much of this from ranger school. I mean, the I, I write in the book, like, the one of the weird twists of fate is that, you know, all the rangers, all the, all the lessons learned that the rangers get from World War II and Korea, they dump into ranger school. Mm -hmm. But they don't create a ranger regiment. Right. Not until 1974. Right. So all those lessons are getting passed to various guys in the U.S. Army who are going back to their individual, you know, you know, infantry units, airborne units, artillery units. The greatest concentration of ranger school graduates ultimately becomes the SEAL teams. Really? Which is so bizarre and yeah. such a weird, like... Anyway, and so so they were going into. I, I didn't I didn't know that they were going to like the ranger school. Absolutely, uh, prior so, to yeah, seal. I mean, it was you know, I, and I was going through schools lists uh, in in the documents that I found for SEAL Team Two, SEAL Team One. This guy's been to this school. This guy, you know, how many guys are going to ranger school every year? And there was like, oh man, you'd see like a you know high number of guys going to ranger school, or high number of guys going to the Army Jungle Warfare School. Yeah, like in all those lessons. I mean. From you know Darby to Watson to you know Army, no, back to somebody in the Navy. Yeah, this is weird. That's fascinating. Well, and now Ranger School is considered punishment in teams, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right, it's punishment, right? <laughs> but I mean, Ranger School is kind of punishment to everybody. Yes. Yeah. Take a break or uh, yeah, yeah, go please, ahead, please. Go ahead. So, guys, thank you for joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. And uh, if you want to support the stream. We uh, have some links down in the description. You can jump onto the Patreon. We do uh, bonus episodes. We do amazing bonus episodes where Jack and D and I sit around and shoot the shit about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we also have other guests on the show. Oh, yeah. Alex the, the Hollings. Guests, the guests and, are definitely worth, uh, yeah. Yeah, some definitely. other good dudes. And there's also some links down there for, um, for like, the merch and other stuff. But, yeah, I mean, please like and subscribe to the channel. If you haven't already, drop us a review on iTunes or wherever else you listen to these podcasts. Again, we really appreciate it, and that kind of stuff really helps the, the show also, grow. Uh, thanks for 40,000 subscribers. Oh, yeah, 40,000. Yeah. Um, for those of you who weren't around way back when we hit 10,000, I'm pretty sure we said that at 50,000, Jack would dress up in Sailor Moon. Sailor no, Moon we cosplay. did not say that. I, if you go back to the 10,000, yeah. I'm pretty sure we did. Somebody can fact check me. Um, uh, but yeah, thanks everybody. We really, we deeply appreciate it. Um, and next week, we're going to have the first Special Forces soldier who's in Afghanistan. Justin. Should be in studio. Um, I'll confirm with him. And then the week after that, we're going to have a... Uh, former CIA paramilitary officer on the show who wrote a book about another paramilitary officer who's kind of legendary in uh, special activities. And then the week after that, we have a German special operations dude coming on the show. 
and then a Marine, uh, a Marsoc Raider, and then we have Doug Wise, who was another uh, senior CIA officer. So that's what's coming up in May uh, in the in the end of uh, April. So I hope you guys will join us for that. Look, if you guys enjoy this show and enjoy the content, um, I haven't read this book, but I'm going to because everything we've talked about tonight sounds absolutely fascinating to me. No, I, 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 I honestly, honest to God, like Navy SEAL history aside, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, this is a really good book, and it's a really well-written book. Uh, I've read a lot of histories and different history books about the special operations world, and I, maybe this is the best written one. A lot of them are very, like, kind of meandering. Um, this one's very compelling. And it, and like I said before, it includes a lot of history I didn't know about. And from what we've been talking to with Ben here, yeah, uh, oh, that's because a lot of this has never been published yeah. before. I, I mean, there, there's stuff in here that, that you will read that, I mean, he did FOIAs for some of the stuff. So it's never even been and Talked to relatives before. and found, like, documents in their attics yeah. and that kind of stuff. So. yeah. By Water Beneath the Walls, The Rise of the Navy Seals by Benjamin Milligan. Um, and it's on Amazon or wherever else you guys go to find books. So I really hope you'll check it out. It, it is really worth your time. And it's one of those books like I've said uh, about like Relentless Strike and some of the other uh, books. Like if you watch this podcast and you're interested in this stuff, like this is really kind of like a no-brainer. It's like the kind of book you should probably have on your shelf and you should probably give it a read when you have the chance. Yep, the link is in the description. Um, as soon as Dave, what are you drinking over there on your side of the table? Uh, my old standby, a little Lafroy. I got the uh, Hakushu single malt S- Japanese whiskey. Suntory. It's Suntory time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ben is over here drinking some Goose Island IPA. Yeah, he said he's he's actually been to Goose Island a few times. Really. I didn't know it was an actual place. I just thought it was like a cool name of a beer. Um, Guys, when uh, Ben gets back in a minute, we'll uh, have him answer your questions, okay? I know there's a couple in there. Yeah, I was going to pull those up. Yeah, I, I, you Dale know, Comstock. I scheduled Dale Comstock. Uh, I, I do need to confirm, like, get a secondary confirmation on it, but for the end of June. He's writing a book about his uh, freelancer days. Oh, is he? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Dale's like... Dale's a good mammer jammer. We also got Fred Galvin, who's a MARSOC officer, uh, another dude who served in Rangers, Special Forces, and Mercy, and a former head of CIA counterintelligence that's coming on in June. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be pretty cool. And then I'm still working on uh, July and August. But we got we do have Jim Morris coming on in July, who was uh, he served he was an A team leader in Vietnam. Wrote for Soldier of Fortune magazine for many years, and uh, he has a book coming out about his experiences post-war. It, it, the book is about his time in Vietnam, but it's also about his time post-war, um, experimenting with LSD. Yeah, and, which, and, which is funny that you know back then it was exper- experimenting. Now it's treatment for post-traumatic stress. I, I, I told him that, and he was kind of like, "What the hell? Like I had to do it illegally, right? And, right." Like, and now it's like a, a an actual thing, but so yeah, it is very interesting. So we'll uh, we'll be talking to him about that this summer. Um, so we're gonna get to some questions real quick. Uh, Alejandro, thank you very much. Um, if I remember right, tasking for missions in Sijasotov in Iraq because of mandate, or if they missed the water, any mission near a body of water deeper than a shower, shower stall went to the Navy boys. <laughs> he said, "Ha, kidding." 
Was that a question? I, I, I don't. That was a good so. comment. That, <laughs> that may have been a smart ass comment. Yeah. I appreciate it. Regardless. Uh, yeah, Alejandro is a ranger, so expect, ex, expect some heat. Uh, KGM, thank you very much. Uh, look forward to reading your opus. Uh, considering the S show that uh, is current, SMO Wars Around the World. Oh, the show that is current. Okay. Um, any reflections in the book on lessons the war machine needs to learn or unlearn That's a good that one. has current relevance? relevance? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I struggle with this one. I'm not. One of the nice things about you know writing history is that uh, you can kind of take cover in it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to. But if historians aren't going to, or I wouldn't even say I'm a historian, but I would say that. Um. Yeah, I think we're entering a new, a new, a new epoch but you know like every epoch it's going to have you know traces of uh of what came before mm-hmm. and I, I know that we're going to make you know incredible mistakes in this I, I mean we're we're entering a you know a new a new era of proxy war um with uh with you know i think a, a sort of a heightened uh risk of nuclear War. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't, and I don't know if that is because we, you know, we we haven't, uh, we don't have anybody in living memory that has experienced it. You know, has seen you know the firebombing of Tokyo or the, you know, the, the trauma that you know we inflicted on Vietnam. And I mean, we're this is real war. I mean, yeah, and this is war. You know, prosecuted by a, uh, a country that doesn't have. It clearly doesn't have you know the same values that you know the West has, and they're, I mean, uh, and they're you know he you know, Putin has clearly telegraphed that you know he's willing to do things that we're not. Mm. So finding our way in that uh, that environment is going to be tricky. It's going to be tricky not just for you know special operations and the SEAL teams and. Everybody else, but it's going to be tricky for policymakers and everybody. Yeah, Ben, I I got a question on that. I mean, what do you think of some of these? Um, some might even call them legacy capabilities: uh, underwater demolitions, subsurface, uh, you know, rebreather systems or whatever it is, scuba systems coming ashore, uh, airborne, static line airborne insertions, or even MFF, you know, freefall insertions. We've done very, very little of this in 20 years of war, and it could bring up the question, are these capabilities even relevant in modern warfare? Do we need to maintain these capabilities? Do they matter anymore? Will they matter in a future war in the Pacific? Yes. I, I, I think they matter more now than ever. Um, but I don't know how. I mean, I, I know that... Uh, Hmm. The the uh, the expectation that uh, Army Special Operations developed after World War II is that we were always going to have a partner force, or not Army Special Operations, but Army, you know, the the OSS operational groups and the Jetbergs. They always they assume that we're going to have this partner uh, partner force in any sort of uh, 
uh, country that we're going to invade, mm -hmm. and we're going to have this, you know, ready population of partisans uh, to work with. Um, and they, you know, the Army Special Forces, they worked for 10 years until, you know, Vietnam came along. And they get to Vietnam, and there's no, there's no partner force. There's no, um, and, and parts because, you know, the world had changed. You know, communism, you know, was a much more uh, persistent, uh, or had a much more persistent police state than, uh, you know, the Nazis did over um, occupied France. You know, there, there's, there's nobody that you're going to be able to um, mobilize. Um, but in that period, they didn't necessarily, the, 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 the skills that they had perfected, they didn't go to waste or anything. They, they ended up just, you know, serving another, another mission. They ended up being valuable in another way. Um, now, I think, you know, uh, you know, Naval Special Warfare is saying that it's going to, it's transitioning back to the water now. Um, you know, we're going to get away from this counterterrorism, you know, mission. We're going to transition back to the water. It's a sort of self-serving. I mean, it, it makes sense to do it, but it's a sort of self-serving um, you why, know, why argument we're still to make. Relevant. Yeah, but I mean, we're about to be. We're we're in, we're, we're our, our adversaries now all have, you know, huge naval presences or huge coastlines that you mm -hmm. know. I mean, we and and huge you know shipping footprints and everything else. Like I, I mean, I think the ability to you know, uh, drop people, f you know, from a, you know, far, far away place to, you know, drop into the water and go someplace. Uh, I, it's more relevant now than it certainly was right. when I was, you know, working. I mean, right. Now that we're dealing with near peers that actually can project naval power, having the, the ability to counter that in such a specialized way. Counter it. And, but, but, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. It'll be interesting to, you know, write the, Write the history of this period. Yeah, twenty-five years. Do you, you know. think uh, there's a sequel to this book uh, in the works from 1976 through the through the 80s, 90s, and War on Terror? I have to go. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I don't know. I mean, I I am um, no. There's not a sequel to that. I, I think this book. Hopefully, this book stands alone. Um, there's there's other books. I don't know what the other books are. Um, I'm in a you know, sort of a miserable time right now, trying to figure out what the next book is. Like I, I think uh, the the worst thing that you can ever do is write a book. The only thing worse than that is to not write a book. Like I feel like now I'm sort of in a very very anxious state at all times, like because I don't have <laughs> this, you know, this millstone around my neck. I got used to the millstone. I liked the millstone, and now I don't have it. And uh, it, I don't know that I'll, I don't know that I'll ever return to NSW as a topic. But I also said that I'd never write a book about NSW. Like I was always, like I said before, my my passion, my interest was always that you know that block of European history from you know you know 1798 to 18 or 1918. Um, but you know the way to ensure that I'll write another book about NSW is to say that I'll never do it. Right. Is there anybody <laughs> in this book that, that you would want to write about that you feel that there's a story that needs to be told? You know, lots of, lots of folks have asked me that. And I, there are. There, 
there's po there's probably fiction opportunities that I haven't thought of, and I've never written fiction. I, I'm not sure that I have the confidence to do it. Um, but uh, I tried to leave everything on the field, mm -hmm. and even the stuff that I cut out, like the you know there were sections there was 20 pages here, 20 pages there that I would cut out, and they were brutal to cut out, like losing a relative. Or not, not, but they were they were just right. they sucked. He did so much work, you know. He, um, but uh, I even in those parts that I, I ripped out, I tried to like just compress, 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 like push all of that into like, you know, if there was twenty pages of material, I tried to find the two sentences, you know, that were uh, representative of those twenty pages, you know. So, well, if not fiction, I mean. Would you ever like consider like a screenplay about one of these events that hasn't been told? I'd I'd be interested. I would talk to a person who did screenplays. I'm not sure that I have the. I don't have the chop. I don't. I. I you know, any dialogue in the in that book. Oh, oh gosh. Hey, if you're a there's screenwriter, definitely yeah, yeah. There's definitely there's definitely. Uh, chapters in this book that could be movies. No, I, it I, sounds. Like, I mean, there, the, there. It, the UDT chapters definitely. It sounds like there's so many, and, and I, I look forward to reading the book, and and, um, and there are so many fascinating stories in it. It sounds like yeah. there are, are a number of movies. We're sort of just scraping the surface too in this interview. There's a lot more in the book, and and that's why people should go and pick it up. Yeah, um, I you were. You, Gone when Jack said, but he, he said it's one of the best history books he's yeah. he's ever read, you know. And Jack reads a lot of history. Yeah, and there's there's like I said, there's a lot in this book that I didn't know about before. So and and Thank as you. Ben pointed out, there's a lot a lot of this is from primary sources. It has not been published before, so it's worth picking up. Next, let's uh, get to the other questions. I, have, I think that's it. Uh, oh, really? BPA okay. is he just thank Alejandro you for your donation. Said great. Oh, Alejandro dropped one. Uh, yeah, what direction do you see the teams going, what their mission set will evolve into or go back to, to include integration of cyber warfare capabilities at a platoon level? You answered a little bit of that, but is there anything you'd like to expand on? Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's, I don't know what's still, I don't know what's classified. I don't know what, so the... The one opportunity that the book has given me has been to be able to go back and connect with the teams. Um, and I've gotten to, I've gotten a, you know, just such a, a great chance to go back and talk with, talk with guys and reconnect. And um, I want to be careful about not to say anything sure, I shouldn't sure, say. Sure, sure, sure. But I, I, I do. I mean, I. Um, The um, the question that he asked is the question that they're all asking, right? And um, and the one fascinating or the one uh, thing that I learned about this institution is that it's very adaptable. Do you find that from the outside looking in, it 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 seems as though the SEALs is the only special operations organization that consistently has the support of the parent force as opposed to being at odds with it because they're 
Like they're the only unit that yeah, does right. anything like that. Right. And I think that that has helped the SEAL teams time and time again. Like, and, and I, yeah, what price tag can you put on that? Right. It's never at the expense of the parent force. Right. It's never at the expense of an infantry, you know, battalion or anything like that. It's SEAL teams stand alone and they have full support from their parent service. Um, it's, you know, slightly different with the, you know, creation of SOCOM. Um, you know, SOCOM has made, you know, the Navy sort of just like an administrative head of the, of the SEAL teams as opposed to a, you know, like a, uh, an actual mm -hmm. parent, uh, parent command. Um, but I think the interesting thing that's happening right now is that, you know, with this, you know, radical U-turn that Naval Special Warfare is undergoing under its current leadership. And I don't think it's a bad U-turn at all. I think it's just a, you know, it's a, a sign of the adversaries that we're facing. Like, it is a, it's going to be a re, um, what happens when two divorced people, uh, you know, uh, get, get remarried? It's going to be a remarriage of... Right of the Navy and the Navy SEALs. I mean, they, they're, they're getting back together, you know, the, getting the, the band back, getting back together again. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities for the fleet and the, and the SEAL teams to be working together right now. And I think, yeah, they, I think they will. And I, 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 I mean, I, to, I recently went to a luncheon, um, where I heard the commander of, uh, submarine forces speak and like the language that the, uh, that, you know, the, they're they're using right now i mean the they're fully i mean the they're fully anticipating that they're going to be the, the the front line of you know any conflict yeah like the the navy is not anticipating being a subordinate force yeah in any future conflict it's i mean i mean and it it makes sense why they think that i mean especially with got a, technology developed the way it is i mean and you've got in your two major adversaries have you know, the Chinese have a, you know, a fleet that dwarfs ours now, and the Russians have a submarine fleet that is, you know... Uh, it doesn't really dwarf us, though. Like, we have, like, what, how many aircraft carriers? Do they have one? We have, like, eight. That's an expeditionary capability. You're right. Absolutely. They can't project power the same the same way that we can. Yeah. But as far as numbers of ships, they are... Yeah. And, and it's, you know, sort of like we talked about. Like, the SEALs are in, in a, you know very um they're in a great position where there is you know nobody else where in the army you'll have sf delta you know rangers and the conventional military you know all competing for the battle space the, the seal and the funding and the budget and the tech and everything else and the seals don't have that that kind of competition right now but I mean, other branch or other special operations units have had all the, all those same advantages um, at other times in our right. history, and they've squandered it. Right. So we'll see what you know NSW does. So with your original, with your grandmother's question, and and sort of what drove you to write this book, in the research and the writing process, do you feel as though you've answered? Your question: Did you found an answer to your question of what were the seals doing in 
You can't, Afghanistan. You can't ask that question. <laughs> Four beers in. <laughs> Four beers in. <laughs> Fair enough. With the, the, the emotional connection. You want me to cry on camera? <laughs> yes, I, I think I've... If you cry, I'll cry. Well, I'll cry. No, I... Uh, yes, I'm, in, I'm incredibly proud of the book. I'm incredibly proud of the... You know, and I'm... Uh, I'm um, I mean, I'm I'm incredibly uh, proud to have brought all of these stories, you know, back to, you know, I, I didn't know them. I, I know that, you know, uh, my readers didn't know them. I, I mean, and, and I, I got a, a, a some somebody sent me a, a direct message on my Twitter account uh, today or yesterday um, about. Their uncle, whose uh, name was uh, Seymour Owens, and he was a he was the commander of the USS Norman Scott. Um, why that's relevant is uh, in um, the invasion of Tinian, the UDT seven was conducting a diversionary reconnaissance to draw Japanese attention away from the actual landing beaches. Um, and UDT-7's role was incredibly important. They had to, you know, swim ashore. They had to blow up obstacles. They had to make it seem like they were going to, that the U.S., mm -hmm. the Marines, were going to be coming ashore at this beach. The, uh, the only defense, well, not the only defense, but one of the defensive um, tools that the UDT-7 had was the USS Colorado, which is a battleship, and it's firing its guns into the Japanese uh, shore guns. And... Um, uh, or into the Japanese shore defenses. And in the process of that, Japanese guns managed to hit the Colorado right amidships, uh, killing something like 47 of her sailors, sinking. The Colorado has to, you know, get away from the battle. They've got to get out of the, you know, the range of the enemy's guns. There was a destroyer skipper there, um, Seymour Owens, Commander Seymour Owens. He saw what was happening to the USS Colorado. He was the uh, brother-in-law of Draper Kaufman, who is the commander of UDT-5. He knows that the UDTs are now exposed. They're ready to uh, take all of this fire in the water. Mm -hmm. He also knows that the USS Colorado is sinking and has to get out of there. So what he does is he sails his uh, ship, the Norman Scott, in between the Japanese guns and the USS Colorado, puts his ship in between them. And in the process, both defends UDT-7 and saves the Colorado, and uh, Japanese, he's killed. He's killed in the process, and so are something like 40 of his sailors. Um, and being able to, and this this guy, he texted me on, on this app, and he's like, that was my uncle. Huh. I never knew why he, I, I knew that he died at, you know, at Tinian. I didn't know why he died. Um, and just the fact that I was able to, you know, find that story and put that in this book, and then, you know, give some closure to. Yeah, you never know how these stories are going to affect people. It's it, incredible. But it, it's, it's. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to get the terminology wrong, but it, it's it's. It seems to transcend the bounds of like a historian and, and, and like you're like an archaeologist, like you're digging up the past, like you're, you're, you're it's a living history. You, yeah. You're yeah. presenting these things that, that may have been lost to history had nobody ever 
written this book or looked for those things. And it seems like there are so many of those types of stories in this book. And the, the I don't know, the honor that you've given these people that maybe, you know, deserve to be acknowledged and have not been up until this point is just amazing. They do. They've been, yeah, but you're, uh, yeah, they, it's a, uh... It's an it's a huge honor, and I'm proud to do it. And was uh, I miss doing it, and hopefully someday I'll get to do it again. And, yeah, and this book is a, it's a real credit to uh, not just the seals, not just the navy, but I think the U.S. military as a whole. And um, again, I mean, I, I think I've recommended it like ten times on this interview so far. But again, hope you guys will check it out. Here it is, by Water Beneath the Walls. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ben, for joining us in studio. This is really We're not this getting paid to plug them tonight, but Jack's eating some boikies right now. I know. Now, people tell love, me it's unprofessional to eat boikies. on the podcast. But do you I'm like hungry. biltong? I don't know what that is. Do you like beef jerky? I do. Awesome. You will love biltong. Well, Even we have, more we have so. the chili and the traditional. You know? The chili's, chili's hot. It'll light you up. <laughs> uh, but you, you will love this. Uh, it's so much better than beef jerky. Thank you guys for having me on. This is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for coming, man. Thank you, everybody. We really appreciate it. We'll it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.